John, I thought your haircut was going to be more extreme. Well, I messed up in the past where I've underestimated what the little numbers mean. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm a, God, I'm a number three guy. And then I do a number three and my entire scalp is showing. I'm like, oh, I'm not a three guy. I'm like a five guy. <laughs> um, But yeah, I am happy with it. You know, like I was saying with Justin, unless I get a good haircut with how thin and slowly balding I am, my I can't really support a grown out fluff head, you know? Right. That's uh did I tell you about I had an adjustable guard one time and I was doing my beard and I had not like locked it in position and so the guard collapsed. Yeah. And I shaved shaved off this whole lovely thing that I have going on that gives me a face. What does your chin look like? Oh, it's horrifying. It's it's not there at all. It's not a good chin. This is all a facade. Ah. Uh, see, I developed a butt chin where I, I started growing a beard as a 20-year-old and I was still kind of baby-faced. Mm-hmm. And I didn't fully shave my face until I was 27 after that point. I, I would buzz it down every now and then, but never the clean shave. And yeah. when I d- finally did the clean shave, I had my two roommates in San Francisco and these two ladies were, one of them was freaking out and the other was taking photos supporting me. But one was like, hands in her hair, like freaked out of like what I was doing. And I shaved it. Yeah, it's just, I got like a dimple right here in the uh-huh. middle of my chin. Uh, I don't know where that came from. I don't know if uh, Josh mentioned this, Sean. I burnt the fuck out. You probably hear it in my voice from, from, from being on set uh, till like 1am, so. Yeah, you sound like the Marlboro man. Yeah. Yeah, the lead actress said my voice sounded sexy. I was like, cool, I'm gonna just keep this going then. <laughs> no, I never smoked Marlboros when I smoked because I could never say it without it just feeling like a word jumble falling out of my mouth. <laughs> Marlboro. That's like, <laughs> I, I I just felt like Camel Light was such an easier thing for me to say when I walked into a bodega half drunk. I feel like, we, yeah, we as a, we as a, a species have evolved beyond the word Marlboro as a, as a thing we enjoy saying. Yeah, I think <laughs> uh, I'm going to share my screen real quick. I have a 30 second thing to show you guys. Okay. And then we will uh, get going here. All right. Carl, you will be a little bit unnerved about this. Have you seen the film Jurassic Park? Yeah. You know what happened there? Well, according to yeah. the sign here, it says scientists are planning to clone mammoths for a theme park. Look at his face. Look at that. He looks like a dog caught in the, the headlights of a car. He's terrified. I love Carl. He sprung to attention Carl. there. I lo- that's, is, that, is that the best news you could have? Man-moths. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Oh, lordy. (laughs) So, guys, uh, here we are with another episode of Nashville CA, wrapping up our spooky month. It's been a bit of a gauntlet, this weekly recording thing. I think Josh and I are both very grateful to just be doing the bi-weekly thing. How are you doing, Josh? Uh, I'm grateful to just be doing the bi-weekly thing after this. Uh, and frankly, I think I have a little bit of a cold, like the, there's been a cold snap here in Tennessee 
And I don't know if it's an allergies thing, but I, you know that feeling um, when you swallow a giant jawbreaker? When you accidentally open up your gullet like a, like a python would and swallow an entire jawbreaker and it gets stuck in your throat? Have you seen the movie Jawbreaker? Because that's like not a good thing to do. Oh, is it not? The movie Jawbreaker, it's a black comedy and it's all predicated on they haze some girl. And so they put a jawbreaker in her mouth and duct tape her mouth shut and throw her <laughs> in the trunk of a car. And then the jawbreaker melts enough to get lodged in her throat and she dies. And then this a bunch of sorority girls have to figure out how to get around this. So, you know, that feeling when you get jawbreakered and, and yes. that happens to you. <laughs> yes. Why? Wait, why are you swallowing jawbreakers? What do you mean? I haven't had a jawbreaker in about... 28 years yeah. but i remember i would just like bore with my tongue and it'd be like white paste everywhere all over my face as i'd try to get to like the center of the earth uh-huh that's uh occasionally very very occasionally uh i go to this candy shop downtown and get weird sodas and and candy like jawbreakers and then i saw candy them shop home. you say yes well, that brings us to our guest, Andrew Ford, who is here joining us to talk about Candyman and Mothman prophecies. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Hello, I'm good. I started the video. Uh, I can see can that. See Whoa, yeah. Blue Jays. I did not expect you to be a Jays fan. I'm not. I was just in Toronto, though, and ever since I started wearing the hat, the Braves keep doing well, so I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, God bless your Braves, because I'm a Padres fan. Oh, yeah, you're I don't right, yeah. often it w ish. I don't wish ill will on many people, but as a franchise, fuck the Dodgers. One hundred percent. I think uh, I hate I hated them more than the Cardinals at the end of game was it game five when Chris Taylor hit three home runs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was bad. Anyway, that dates us specific very specifically. But yeah, no the. Uh, Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here, even though I sound terrible. I don't know if I have a cold, but I am. I am exhausted from working on uh, as a second AD on a on a movie. So it's, and I may get a phone call at some point. And if I do, we'll just put a put a pen in it and come back. You you sound uh, like throaty and lusty right now. Well, I am horny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, I just, you have like yeah, an just... Adrian Barbeau in the fog <laughs> thing going on. Um, yeah, a hundred percent. Oh god, I'm totally spacing on her name right now. But like, the, this is um, staying with you uh, on the radio or whatever. The thing Stevie Wayne. Yeah. Stevie Wayne. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I am excited to be on this podcast and to talk about a couple of movies, both of which are very good, um, and one of which I rewatched, but the other one I remember fairly well <laughs> yeah so how would you guys which one do you think we should start with andrew because i'm i'm not a completely i don't have a definite answer in my mind of which would lead better into the other um yeah i'm not sure uh i guess um we could just we could just roll with it chronologically and start with candyman <laughs> that works candyman no <laughs> don't do it do not do it <laughs> I ain't fucking around with that. Are you um, sensitive to Candyman? Oh, I. <laughs> it creeps me out too much. I th I think it hits me like in a very primal place. The the fear of the Candyman. Really? Yeah. Oh, we have been saying that a lot. Is that what you're worried about? Just a saying of the name? Yes. But he's not going to respond if we call him Candyman. Yeah, right, I hope that's not. 
Yeah. Maybe we're talking about something completely different. Candeman yeah. is if he were instead like a Jewish boy who was yeah. killed and had a hook for a hand, then he would be a Candyman. I was going to say, I think Candyman <laughs> is our, our local Jewish deli. Uh, Candyman is uh, uh, possesses you know uh, canned goods. It's a demon that possesses canned goods. <laughs> Candyman. <laughs> um, ah. So, Andrew, what is your? Uh, do you have any history with Candyman? When was the first time you watched it? The OG. Um, I definitely, yeah. For for me, I watched it probably uh, in college when I kind of just dove deep into horror. I think I kind of growing up, I kind of was you know terrified of it. I remember seeing it on like you know uh, video store shelves, mostly the second one because that was when I was um, going into video stores and retaining information, <laughs> retaining making memories with my brain, but. Uh, yeah, the um um and uh, yeah, I didn't. I don't think I watched it until college, and then obviously I've seen it a, a few times since. Like the, I think fairly certain the last time I watched it was the unrated version on the Scream Factory Blu-ray that's uh, come out recently or a few years ago. And then um, I don't know how far we want to get into this, but I then uh, you know a couple of years ago, and uh, Josh and I worked on a movie with the Candyman himself, uh, Mr. Tony Todd. And, uh, he was, he was a delight. Um, and, uh, he would not, he would, he would not tell me whether he was in the 2021 Candyman or not. And I think, uh, uh, the answer is kind of, but I won't, (laughs) uh, (laughs) but yeah, uh, I love Candyman. Uh, obviously love Tony Todd. I think he's a genius. Uh, I definitely, um, he, the character that he was able to create with, uh, Bernard Rose in Candyman is just, it's so diff- so much different from um it's so different from what was like prevalent at the time. I think it stood out in the early nineties like horror scene. I feel like things especially with slasher films, which this is, you know, loosely considered, I guess, it definitely um it's much more grounded and like gothic romance and there's a lot more I guess uh you know, if if it came out now they would be like it's elevated horror, you know, and I bet I'm sure that's what they call the new one, but yeah, I thought. I, I mean, it's it's an incredible movie. Uh, you know, mas- you know, horror masterpiece. I don't know. Uh, who's up next? I love. I love that you mentioned <laughs> being a kid in the gr- and the not the grocery store, the video store. <laughs> see, that'd be a weird aisle to see Candyman walking down next to the pasta sauce. <laughs> um, but that box cover with the eyeball and mm-hmm. the silhouette and the bee—that's one of those things as a kid. That's just gonna like stop you in your tracks. I remember the child's play cover art really freaking me. I used to get so scared just walking down the horror aisle as a kid, <laughs> but it was the best. But your imagination as a kid is always so much worse than what most of these movies could be. I still can't watch Carnosaur. I'm, I'm too. I'm too alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember my history with Candyman. I remember. I saw it like in college too. I think uh, when I was early twenties, getting like more and more into horror. Um, but I remember being a kid and being—I don't know. This came out in ninety-two, so I, I was a couple of years after that. I was like nine or ten. I remember a kid telling me on the playground, like, "Yeah, there's this part where like a kid's on the toilet, and then like, like a snake like comes up through his toilet and like." <laughs> kills him like on the toilet or something I'm like what are you talking about and then i remember going home and like kind of looking at the toilet and just kind of like uh, i'm afraid of this now <laughs> <laughs> so this movie had a long impact on me before i actually saw it and but like he's 
early 90s were a weird time for horror. So for this to come out of that time period, it, I think, makes it even more impressive and surprising. Yeah, this, uh, for me, I don't think we went and saw it in the theater because I was like uh, 12 when this came out. But I did see it pretty, pretty closely after on home video. And uh, actually, I went and saw the first sequel on a date. So, like, this is that weird uh, age gap between us here showing itself a little bit because I was already kind of out of the world. Uh, but I remember it from a very, I mean, 12 is still pretty young to be hitting this. 12 is way too young to be hitting this movie. <laughs> this movie is like gnarly. Yeah. There's a lot going on in it. Like gore wise. I always forget too, like how intense the, uh, the bloodletting is once it actually starts in this movie. Yeah, no, uh, there's there's not too much that's off camera once this thing really gets going. No, I totally forgot about um, uh, Helen uh, attacking Anne-Marie uh, with the cleaver at a certain point. Oh, yeah. And that yeah, part... she gets her in like the, the upper bicep. Yeah. And, and... blood sprays out. Uh, that would have shocked me as a kid. Yeah. I remember watching... I think we talked about this at some point, but watching Terminator 2 at, like, a very young age. It was one of the first VHSs that I remember, like, attaching myself to and watching a bunch of times over and over. Mm -hmm. That nuclear bomb scene where oh, she's yeah. holding onto the fence and flames are ripping through the playground. I was too young to be watching that. <laughs> too young. Yes. Yeah, and that uh, that movie at least you think that you're just watching like a regular action movie and you don't expect these absolutely horrifying things that happen occasionally in it. No. Well, oh my, my God, when Arnold peels his arm off mm -hmm. to show his mechanical arm, yeah. child me is not down with skin peeling. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I think the one that got me in that was the, uh, the arm sword through the, through the back of the head and through the milk carton. And that then one. the milk is mixing with the blood and yes. pouring out. Yeah. Can you imagine that, like, in a big-budget action movie these days? I cannot. Like a Marvel movie? Mm -hmm. Somebody gets, like, gutted through the mouth, through the back of the skull? No. Yeah. That's, I just went and watched Dune, and there's a lot of action in it, but it is pretty bloodless as a movie. Okay, let's keep it, it spoiler-free here, but I do want to talk about Dune because I have not seen it. Uh-huh theater worthy i'm i'm like I, I i my best experience or one of my best theatrical experiences was watching arrival with my friend it okay was the first time we were in a theater with reclining seats mm -hmm. and like brand new kick and sound system and my god some of the noises in that movie combined with um is it johan johansson the i think composer, so yeah, yeah. his score it like the whole place was rumbling yeah i was so into it that i feel like i owed denny villeneuve um i don't know how to say his name i i did my best um <laughs> i know it's not dennis villeneuve okay <laughs> see i always overpronounce it i'm like villeneuve if you do it on purpose then nobody can kind of call you out on it right I, i'm doing my best here man <laughs> i didn't graduate college okay <laughs> don't spit your coffee 
You're in good company. Uh, <laughs> no, I would absolutely recommend. Uh, I went and caught a matinee of it the other day, and I haven't been to the theaters for a couple weeks now, and it was absolutely worth it. I think, and I'm I'm not one of those people where like if you don't see it on the big screen, you didn't really see it. I hate that argument. Uh, yes, because I grew up with like a little 21 inch TV in my bedroom watching all these old classic movies and everything. So I absolutely will not be the person to, to forward that argument. But yeah, yeah. especially now with like, I have an in-game setup as far as my sound system is concerned. Oh yeah. Like big tower speakers in the front. So I can, I can shake my house potentially like to the ground watching master (laughs) and commander if I wanted to. And so I'm completely immersed. I mean, there are always like the house distractions and stuff. Yeah. If you want to let those get to you, um, like your dog. But they, no, but like the theatrical <laughs> experience has never been better at home, and that's right. the same with like sports now. Sports are so good on TV. Why am I going to spend two hundred fifty dollars to go like for like nine hours and watch a football game? Well, b- both of these questions would be great for Andrew, actually, because I believe he watched Dune at home versus my big screen experience. And I believe he's planning on spending money to go see a sporting event soon, if possible. Andrew, I have not seen Dune. I will not say uh, anything uh, even qualitatively about Dune, but I will say um, the sound uh, experience. Yeah, it uh, uh, literally like I've got the Sonos surround i don't know how much we went into a different thing but it's got like this giant like subwoofer dude and it like shook the floor and i'm like <laughs> watching it in the middle of the night I, I hope i didn't bother the neighbors but honestly at the end of, I, I came straight from shooting and i was like i was gonna watch the braves they got the shit beat out of them in like the fourth inning and i was like i'm just gonna watch dude instead i have a oh, limited that, window to do something uh was it, that it, the it, two grand slam night no that was the um um or was that uh, the other series that, the other series, yeah, Those the Red Sox series. were the hit and all the Grand Slams, but the Braves were, it was, um, it was the game that I mentioned earlier where Chris Taylor hit three home runs. I think he hit, he hit one, and then I think Pollock went back to back with him, and I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather, I, I will get more enjoyment out of my, like, time away from set from watching Dune right now, and then occasionally checking my phone to see the score. But yeah, um, in terms of um, uh, the theatrical experience versus... Uh, I have heard that the Dolby Theater, uh, we have one in Nashville, um, there's a Dolby Theater where the sound is it, it, like colossal for Dune. And I would highly recommend, I, if I'm, I want to go see it in theaters and I want to go see it in that theater to get the full experience. Because I also have an issue with like sometimes the brightness on my TV, it gets weird. And different apps treat it differently, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I'm trying to get like a governing overall setting on the TV where it's like fine, but then HBO Max is like, we're going to do our own thing. I'm like, alright, whatever. I'm fucking around with the backlight setting pretty frequently mm-hmm. on my TV and getting it just dialed in. And then some movies, yeah, I just, whatever the problem is, I don't know, but it's like, there's so much contrast that I got an LED bar for the back of my TV. Mm-hmm. Just having a little bit of backlight with certain movies helps me not have like that strobe effect where I feel like my eyes are burning out from this flash editing or whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got um, an LED like st- uh, strip around the back, but I, it isn't like the kind because there are some where you can plug them into the TV and it will it will adjust according to what's on screen. I think I, that was a little. I don't know how I don't know how you do that. I think that might require a little. <laughs> <laughs> I think it takes some setup. It exists. 
Um, also, uh, thank you guys for, 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 uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just roll through for, it. It's fine. I'm clear for the day for work. All I have to hey, do is something nice. afterwards. So that was my, that was my little phone call, a little, uh, little, uh, podcast magic secret. I was high. You'll, you'll hear at my end of the phone call when you listen to the recording, if you want, you can include <laughs> it if you want. <laughs> It'll be a Patreon bonus when we set up a Patreon. Yeah. The, at the end of the phone call, I'm really like, Oh, I'm, I am actually podcasting right now. <laughs> but, uh, so, Josh, yeah. you wanted to talk about Bernard Rose for a bit, which is good because I don't know a single thing about Bernard Rose. So, uh, actually, you're confusing the two because I want to talk about Mark Pellington. Uh, but I do have a little bit on Bernard Rose because, uh, actually, at the time of Candyman, uh, I had seen. I don't know at what point the movie Paper House. So he's Bernard Rose is one of the first people who I recognized like a name traveling from one movie to another besides Spielberg and Hitchcock. Like those were the first two growing up that I'm like, those people are directors. Um, so Bernard Rose, when Candyman came out, I was like, oh, I know this guy because of this movie Paper House, which is uh, absolutely great and horrified me as. A kid. I don't know what effect it would have now, um, but I think it would be. It was really imaginative, and you can really see like his grasp of tone and kind of that gothic feel over both of these movies. I think. What else has he done? Uh, he also yeah. did um, the Red Red Wine music video. Ooh, nice! Oh, uh, UB forty. Very he did, cool. Re- he did Relax. I think that's. Yeah, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, he did that video. He did uh-huh. Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. Yeah, a couple for them. And then he did, um, uh, it looks like he kind of, he did some stuff for like HBO, I think. In the uh, And then he did um, the one, I haven't seen actually most of, I don't think any of his other stuff, but Ivan's XTC is supposed to be really good. And I have a copy of that that I need to watch. And yeah, um, yeah he's had a very uh, interesting career. Um, and I thought his new he has a new movie that he did uh, that Tony's in, and I can't find the name right now. But uh, apparently that played really well, and that's been doing well at festivals. So I'm excited to see see that when it comes out. So the other parts that I wanted to bring up, like as backgrounding for this, is first of all, um, I don't know how true this is because it was on Wikipedia, and <laughs> you know it's that's as true as it can be, but. Uh, that Tony was actually the one who came up with the backstory for the Candyman character. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself, I think is fascinating and like goes to show his involvement and his uh, dedication to this. Like he really wanted this movie. He thought it was going to be a great character for him to portray. He wanted um, his uh, Phantom of the opera character and that's what he wanted to be able to do. So the, kind of the romantic gothic feeling that you get through this was definitely intended by him at least. I read the short story by Clive Barker. It's in his books of blood, which are an awesome collection of short stories that I highly recommend. I read them all in a sociology class in junior college, <laughs> not by the professor's choice. I was just bored in class. And so I reading <laughs> Clive Barker. <laughs> uh, but I do not, I don't remember the specifics. I, I should have reread it before this one because I don't remember the specifics of 
what's what's in the book versus what's in this movie mm -hmm. you know there's sweets to the sweet and there's that idea of the myth the mythos keeps us alive and we like our memory can be prolonged by people speaking them and sharing them and and the legend that exacerbates life and everything but i don't remember how much of these specific details were in that short story mm -hmm. uh yeah because i know this the whole setting was different uh mm -hmm. because it's set in london and based around their class system rather than our american inborn racism yes and if there's ever a movie that 29 years later is still just as much to say about gentrification and the the forced ghettoization of minorities and everything else um yeah this movie is still as relevant now as it was back then unfortunately so the opening of the movie i think that the scene setting is perfect the floating through chicago uh growing up for me chicago was always the city like i didn't New York was just Chicago, but slightly different in my brain because I had only visited Chicago. Um, so to see that skyline and everything in this movie uh, with that, the Philip Glass music, definitely like it just sets a tone for me and it hits me, I think, in a very special place because of that. Uh, it, yeah, we got to talk Philip Glass because he yes. literally sets the tone right off the bat with this movie with one of the top-tier horror movie scores of all time, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Just listening to this again today, um, last night and finishing it this morning, I'm completely swept away. And it's mesmerizing. And it just... It, it, it captures, like, the mesmerization of Helen in this fantastical music with these sweeping synthesizers and the Oz. He uses those Oz synthesizer, the... Mm -hmm. really really awesome this is one of like my favorite scores ever it's so good the little opening uh story about the babysitter uh and then ted Raimi as a greaser which <laughs> every time i watch this movie i'm like oh shit yeah ted Raimi's in this movie i forgot for only for like two minutes but it's great uh i think it totally sets the the urban myth uh urban legends tone early on uh and it's where we first learn the story of Candyman, or a version of the story of Candyman. Um, they they actually name drop an actual uh, lake in Indiana, but it's like in mid-central Indiana, which is pretty far from Chicago. So it seems like they would have picked something closer uh, as a reference point, but I just thought that was odd, just knowing the geography. It's like, that's that's quite a ways away. I grew up a lot closer to it. Uh, but yeah, Candyman, you say his name five times into a mirror and he shows up and splits you from groin to gullet. I thought maybe that was just hyperbole. No, but no, that, that, that's, that's literal. <laughs> that's literal. <laughs> that's his MO. That's what he do. Uh, there's a horror. Another connection I have to this movie is there's a band called Mortician and they were like a death metal band from the late 90s early 2000s or something one of like the early bands and majority of their songs start with a 30 to 2 minute long 30 second to 2 minute long horror movie clip and so this one it starts with what's blood for if not for shedding 
with my hook for a hand, I'll split you. And then, and then right after that's just, <laughs> and the songs are usually shorter than the horror movie clip itself. So <laughs> really weird band, but uh, such specific <laughs> memories for me, like 2 a.m. being 22 years old, listening to them. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from your groin to your gullet. Honestly, good work if you can get it. You, 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 you're a band, but you actually we sell albums that just take horror movie clips, and <laughs> that's all we yes. do. I, mean, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I think they got lucky. This was before the internet, because I'm pretty sure they would get a lot of cease and desist now if they still existed. Truly, the uh, Paul's boutique of their generation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the professor talks about one of the myths is um, pet baby alligators. And then mm-hmm. the alligators get so big that they end up in the the basement or in the sewers or whatever. I remember in high school there was an essay. It was a it was like a it was an essay for like the SAT two or something. So like a big deal test, and you show up, and there it's an essay test, and you have to write. And the prompt is like Stephen King once said that we all have alligators in our basement of our minds, and if you don't feed it every now and then with a horror movie or something the alligators are going to rampage and start coming up, looking into the house. I remember I was such a weenie at the time about horror movies. I'm like, that's preposterous. You should watch zero horror movies. And that way the alligators starve. Nobody needs to be watching these things. (laughs) I was a weenie. (laughs) Um, So we first meet Helen and Bernadette and I am only going to mention people's races here because it plays into the themes of the movie, I feel like, in the backgrounding of certain characters. Uh, Helen is a white woman. Bernadette is a black woman. They are both graduate students, and they're doing their thesis on urban legends. The professor is actually Helen's husband, Trevor. Uh, and I think Helen and Trevor probably are the type of people that are portrayed in Get Out, uh, they would totally be like, oh no, we have a black friend, Bernadette. Like, we can't be racist. We ha- we know Bernadette. She's one of our best friends. It's totally yeah. the, the kind of shit they would pull. Watching this now with more social awareness, I'd say as a 30-something-year-old, seeing Helen go to the ghetto, but looking at it not as like people or anything, but it's just like, a place to discover mythology. And like, she's not treating it with reverence really of these are people's lives and people are living there. She's just interested in like the curiosity side of it and invading their territory for her own good and not really respecting sides of it. I don't, it's, and she talks uh, specifically about the building that she lives in, uh, Lincoln village. Uh, she lives in a gentrified building where the ghetto was knocked down and now she pays super high rent in a new modern building. Yeah, and that um, setup in Chicago 
they use it really, I think, um, pointedly here. Uh, and it's something that the, the, well, it's not a remake, the 2021 version tries to do, but I don't think pulls off as well. Uh, these shots from Cabrini Green over to the Gold Coast um, are like you see how close these two worlds are the from the projects to the highest price uh, real estate in the whole Midwest, probably. Uh, and just how much it, it really is like uh, it's dystopic, practically to realize kind of the forced conditions that the uh, assumed lower classes have to live in in this setting and how close they are to, uh, you know, gold and towers in the sky, basically. It is. I do keep thinking about um, the 2021 film, just listening to, you know, as we're describing the, uh, the, the original, I mean, it really, in a lot of ways, it makes the 2021 film seem kind of redundant in a way. I mean, it's, you know, it obviously did very well, um, but it's a, it's the kind of thing where because the original is so, I mean, it's just, it doesn't have, it's not that the, the new one was, was poorly made or anything. It's very well made. It's just too many, too many, too many uh, different perspectives, too many people, like, I think had their, had their hands in it, trying to make it something or indeci- there's indecision about how to how to make the the points they're trying to make uh, satirically, culturally, so, uh, socially, and and uh, the 1992 film has has no real you know qualms about what it's doing, knows exactly what it wants to be, is very deliberate and precise in the way it unfolds, um, and in what it's in in the conclusions it's trying to, to to lead the audience to, and so I think um it's it's an, it's really interesting to to kind of explore them as a as a contrast. I also keep thinking about it, I'm sure, because I've, I've seen it more recently than I've seen the 92 one. Uh, but it, it is, like, crazy to remember, like, oh, yeah, like, that is in the 92 one. And it's, like, all the things that they're trying to, like, we have to make this to make it modern and make it about this. It's like, but it's already about that, you know? Like, so mm-hmm. what else are you doing, you know? But, we, you know, not that it's, not that we have to turn this into a 2021 thing. But I do think it's interesting to see the intention, the, the intentionality was more pronounced in the new one. Um than it was in the original and the original kind of sneaks up on you, which I think is probably more effective at getting the point across. Walking yeah. out of the theater, excuse me, Josh, for yeah. 21, I, I dug the movie and like as a theatrical experience, I was into it and engaged. Um, but then after an hour or two, when I was thinking about it, I was like, I, there's, there's a lot going on and I don't, I, I was kind of having trouble sorting sorting things out in my mind of like what's what and what's saying what and are these two different themes independent or were they trying to merge these ideas together? I really need a rewatch of the movie is Mm -hmm. basically what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like the new one um, is a lot more didactic and heavy handed with its messaging, which actually reduces it a little bit because the 92 version is it's a great story and it ha- feels like it has these different layers that you can kind of peel back and appreciate. Whereas the new one feels like it is, it is a one-to-one metaphor and everything that doesn't kind of fit the metaphor really sticks out as a sore thumb because everything else tracks so tightly to uh, here's the theme and here is what we are saying. Uh, and I feel like that's the movie's detriment 
and the original there's more room for kind of gray area and interpretation rather than just uh you have to lock it to your theme so tightly well and the original has more tony todd which uh it's never a bad really yeah that that you know the whole every film that's you know or yeah the remake could only ever have existed in his shadow um so it's it's kind of tough to it's it was a thankless task of course for anyone to you know do so i think they you know they they definitely did a good job you know at what they were trying to do in terms of like making it like it, 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 at least if it just directs people back to the original which i'm sure i feel like it has to <laughs> mm-hmm. based on the based on the way it ends like not to spoil anything but you kind of have to be like okay like i i should go see the original if i haven't already because obviously there's something there so i yeah it's um it's it's a it's a uh what's the word i'm looking for it's a it's a net positive it's 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 a good yeah. it, it it brought more good things than bad things into existence so it's a positive thing but yeah i definitely want to revisit it and 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 uh try to examine it a little more closely and see and see how they're kind of putting it piecing it together and and um structuring it so Sean you brought up that Helen's condo was originally built to be public housing as well uh, and that she could she can pull out the um the medicine cabinet from her bathroom and it just opens up into the apartment next door. Uh the apartment I used to live in has the exact same setup. <laughs> Lancaster with a jump scare. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That was like that was like the medicine cabinet scare all over again. Hey, stop, buddy! Stop! It's okay. I'm on the, I'm on the phone. <laughs> oh my God. Daddy's on the podcast, buddy. <laughs> um, my dogs are gonna start barking at me soon too. Yeah, but the uh, the apartment that I used to live in uh, has that same setup where you can pull out the medicine cabinet and it just leads directly to the apartment next door, like you could push out their medicine cabinet and go through. Uh, and our how friend, can that, how can that be? Our friend Eli still lives there in the same complex. How can that exist? Well, they have, I, he has carpet in it around his toilet too. So there's all kinds of problems going on there. Oh no. <laughs> yes. Oh no. Buddy, yeah. Can you sit down, buddy? Lay down, there's two buddy. toilets with carpet around them in the same uh, bathroom. Practically. It's the weirdest well, setup. And, yeah. One's in a closet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, when you guys were growing up, just talking more about like folklore, did did you have any like campfire stories or be- like any significant bedtime stories or anything like that where maybe someone told you a ghost story that freaked you out? We had, um, which I only learned later that it's a super common uh, urban legend, but the like the legend of Powerline Road. Um, which was basically the, the, the hook hand on the door on the car door, uh, myth. Oh, where a couple pulls over and then the, the, the boyfriend gets out of the car and then she sees the girlfriend sees a hook or something. Yes. Um, but that thing where they adapt the myth to like geographically the place where you live. So like. When I was told that story, it had these specific kind of landmarks of like, you know, where you turn off of Hively or whatever onto Powerline Road and then you go back down there and it's abandoned and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there wasn't anything. There was also talk about um, 
some sort of murder house in the in the Fruit Hills, uh, which was an area near where I lived. Uh, but I never found that either. So, the dumbest one we had growing up in San Diego was there was a freeway off ramp, and if you parked your car at it, it looked like it was. It looked like the off ramp was slightly uphill or downhill, but then if you'd park your car at it and get out of your car, the car would roll appearingly uphill because ghosts were pushing it. Oh, okay. But it's like this is just an optical illusion that this is downhill. <laughs> I don't I don't understand what this is. Uh we also did have in Elkhart, uh, and this wasn't a myth, this was an actual thing. Uh, a local dentist had kept a bunch of the teeth that he pulled and had them embedded into a block of concrete in his front yard as advertisement. That's not good. No. That, that seems, yeah, bad. That's just as upsetting. Heaven's Season one Gate of, uh... happened a couple miles away from me. Ooh. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, uh, was a big, that was a big deal. I think we had, I mean, in terms of things that we would talk about, there's the typical like urban legends, like, you know, uh, the one where the girl falls asleep and her dog would lick her hand. She'd like have her hand over the bed and then she'd wake up and, and uh, her dog would be dead in the bathroom. And it would say people can lick hands, too, <laughs> from the mirror. <laughs> uh, or um, <laughs> the, and then the, we had the lizard man. He was very we had a lizard man in South Carolina. Uh, he was spotted. There's like that grainy photo online if you if you google it uh i don't know what um that they tried to pass off as evidence at some point uh i think he was in bishopville or something maybe like 30 45 minutes away from me which growing up was like you know another country you know i didn't you know travel we my family didn't like go outside of the city all that much at the time but yeah it was uh i remember hearing about that and being like you know occasionally we'd be like you know late at baseball practice in the middle of nowhere and it's just like oh i'm the last person here and i'm like oh boy the lizard man's coming out yeah <laughs> uh i'm looking at photos of lizard man these are the most preposterous <laughs> grainy zoomed in on nothing photos i've ever seen probably, it's not like even like there's a guy in a costume it's just the silhouette of branches <laughs> creating a slightly anthropomorphic shape and people are calling it lizard man <laughs> Hey, look, in South Carolina, we don't have a lot of things to, to do. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if we're not on the coast, you know, we got to we got to entertain ourselves. <laughs> uh, uh, I did look up the Elkhart tooth brick, which is what it's colloquially known as. <laughs> Apparently, a doctor made it to commemorate his lost dog. And there are thousands of teeth. In the concrete block. Did the dog this, help him remove teeth or something? I have no idea. This, this was, <laughs> was the dog involved in the operation? This was in the 40s or 50s. Who knows what they were thinking back then? Is this the, uh, the monster from uh, the first season of that Channel Zero show, Campbell Cove? Like the big tooth dude? That's basically yes, all I'm the, picturing. Like that in brick form. <laughs> yeah, there's a close-up of it, and it is upsetting to... <laughs> Uh, I've seen it in real life, and still the picture is upsetting to me. Oh, good lord. So talking about Helen's apartment, she has some nice monsteras in her hallway, which are houseplants, but I kind of thought it was funny that she has monsters in her hallway. Nice. Ah. <laughs> um, 
Helen and Bernadette say Candyman into the mirror five times, but only Helen actually completes it. Um, Helen and Bernadette go to uh, Cabrini Green, which is the the name of the the housing development. Um, Bernadette comes equipped with mace and a stun gun, and she's like super nervous about it. Uh, Helen is... Helen thinks she's the white savior of this story, I think, at this point. Yes, she sure. she totally is uh just excited to go and maybe exploit these people's uh pain and trauma for her thesis and to get some acclaim. Uh ugh. she ugh. exudes just arrogance. Yes. Um the story that they hear of the woman who was killed by somebody crawling through the that hole in the wall uh, was actually based on a true story. It's okay. got to happen eventually if you give people access to their neighbor's apartments like that, right? Uh-huh. Uh, the woman's name was Ruthie Mae McCoy. Uh, and, yeah, apparently that's based on a real thing that happened. Um, there Can are... I say I miss 90s color palettes? That, there's those guys hanging out at the bottom at the entrance to Cabrini Green. Mm-hmm. And one guy has like a jacket with like a purple beanie and it's a black jacket with like neon blue and yes. bright purple tones. And it's just the coolest. And it makes me so sad that we we bailed on color as an American society. Yeah, I've got I've got an old uh, early, like early 90s uh, Charlotte Hornets jacket. And oh, it's, it's that's amazing. so great. That's some great, like, teal and aqua. And, yeah. I I didn't even like the Charlotte Hornets, and I had one of those jackets. <laughs> Why? Why? They were popular. They were, like, I think they were, I, they, I think they were really popular because they were really good for a while. I think they they had, like, a great team with, like, um, a lot of fun fun young players, and then they all kind of split up, like Alonzo Mourning and Larry Johnson. Muggsy Bowes, it's crazy. I can't believe yes. I remember this. You know, like, yeah, Muggsy Bowes, of course, is, like, shortest great basketball player probably what was he like uh, five he's gotta be right like yeah. five he's probably five like my height but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the uh, but at the time i was a bulls guy because mm-hmm. i was a chicago everything because that's what i grew up with like they were the closest team uh mm, it's pretty easy to cheer for the bulls back then how about <laughs> yes it super was <laughs> That's my grandfather was very into <laughs> Chicago sports, though, uh, w- when I was growing up. So that was most of my exposure to the sports uh, world was just him. You're completely valid. And it, hey, if you want to be a fair weather fan, go. Oh, for it, you know? no, not you. I'm just saying you are validated. I'm just saying in general to our <laughs> listeners, if the proverbial you <laughs> wants to fair weather fan it, go for it, man. Don't let don't let sports fans drag you down because they're obsessive about things. Whatever. You can be you can be the John Cusack, or you can be the Barstool sports guy confronting him about showing up as a White Sox fan when he's so famously a Cubs fan. Yes, <laughs> or or you could be Rob Lowe and go to a game that you just wear an NFL hat because you can't even be bothered to choose a side, so you're just there to support the league itself. <laughs> the concept of sports, I love it. <laughs> I love that. Like a when sports Tom hat would at, be great. When Tom Cruise was at the Giants game, and they even. They asked him, like, uh, 
who are you who are you rooting for? And he's like, Oh, I'm just a fan of I'm just a fan of the game. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody I mean, that's... people retweet it with the Rob Lowe NFL hat thing, yeah. like like immediately. But to be fair, that is how I watch most sports. I mm-hmm. I I rarely do I cheer against a team unless it's the Dodgers or Yankees, basically. So for the most part, I just want everyone to have fun. <laughs> kind of, that Simpsons episode where Marge wants to bet on horse racing, but she just wants to bet that all the horses have fun. <laughs> uh, when Helen's walking around exploring, I never remember that she finds candy with razor blades in it. Yeah. I never remember this. And that was such like an iconic urban legend of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, don't ever let anybody give you a homemade candy apple or anything like that. It's going to have razor blades. It's like, if you put razor blades in your homemade candy apples, the cops would find you in six minutes. (laughs) Well, the kid walked this way and there's 12 houses. And so it's one of you. Yeah. The, uh, which I think is one of those myths that has like never borne fruit. Like no one's ever actually tried that. Um, but, uh, a few years ago when born fruit, that was good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, when my girls were small and we were going to playgrounds, there was somebody who super glued razor blades into a slide in a child's playground. Jesus. Yes. That's horrifying. Yeah. Fuck. Uh, yeah. that reminds me of, there's like the tales from the crypts sequence where the guy's trapped and his dog is, it's a hallway full of razor blades mm-hmm. from the movie tales from the crypt. And there's a ravenous dog at the end of it that hasn't eaten in like a month or like a week or whatever, and is like starving. And he's got to get all the way to the other end, or it's going to chase him. And the hallway gets narrower and narrower. Oh and God! To rush past these. Ra- oh man, it's nuts. But yeah, that uh, is still preferable to the one with going down a slide uh, and running into something is like a phobia. Like that's one of the things that scares me the most. Like the potential. Like I haven't watched that Action Park documentary. Because I'm, I don't want to see that ha- that kind uh-huh. of thing happen. Like you're full speed, and then or Aqua Slash, that slide that came out earlier yes. this year, where it's like you know, no, no, no way. The Action Park documentary was pretty fun. I enjoyed it, <laughs> and I mean, really fucked up that there was death, and so the documentary did kind of take a wild swing where it's like this was so zany, this was so crazy, everything was nuts, and then 15 minutes in, it's like. I was the mother of a boy that died. I was the brother of a kid that died. This is not funny. This is not a game or a joke. I was like, oh, man, yeah, okay. Uh, But we didn't have anything. In California, we went to Disneyland and Six Flags or the local San Diego County Fair. We, We didn't have any of those little DIY amusement parks that seemed to pop up across the country. Yeah, we went to, like, Kings Island and... Uh, got to see Yogi Bear walking around and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think I went to either Kings Island or Cedar Point. It, uh, maybe Kings Island because it was it was affiliated with Paramount. Yeah, at one point, and they had a a Top Gun roller coaster. But 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 by the time I got there, it was called like Jet Fast or something because <laughs> Paramount didn't have it anymore. <laughs> Sean, um, have you have you ever been to Knott's Berry Farm? Yes, uh, I, I have one specific memory of Knott's Berry Farm, which is the free fall one where like it rises you up in a cage and from what i remember this may be way wrong it's like it's basically like a rod iron or steel bars that you get into a cage and then it takes you all the way up 
and then just drops you down before breaking you after 100 feet or whatever. And I remember my sisters telling me to brace myself, but I was like seven years old, so I didn't know what that word meant. And so I was just like, what does that mean? And the thing started to drop, and I'm sure I've exaggerated so much of this in my head, but like as a kid in my head, I like floated as that thing free fall down. Uh-huh. Uh, I've always wanted to go to Not Scary Farm. That's, I always thought that I've would be never been to a haunted house or a haunted fairground or a haunted corn maze. I've never done anything. And now it, I don't know why. Now. Now that I'm a horror. I know why I didn't as a teenager. Mm -hmm. I, was too, I was too afraid of being afraid. But now as a 35-year-old big tough horror fan, big big tough man now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't fault you. I absolutely will not go. Uh, Andrew and I and a couple other friends went to a haunted tavern experience a couple weeks ago, which is the closest to a haunted house that I will get. Uh, and it was very nice. And it was just a, a goofy magician man told us ghost stories. And why it was delightful. Like, why don't you like the haunted house? Oh, I don't want that. I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to be startled. Jump, is the jump scare? It's the jump scare. See, I don't. Yeah, the, the jump scare. Like. There's got to be another way to scare me, but <laughs> the only other way is if you go to one of those, like, serious uh, uh, haunted yeah. houses, which I thought only existed in movies. I I didn't know that these were real things where people sign waivers and get kidnapped and canvas bags over their heads and, like... That, yeah. Uh, no, thank you, man. I'm not looking to give myself PTSD. Um, I met the guy who runs one of those that was, like, uh, maybe... Three years ago, he was on, like, Good Morning America and stuff, and I was on a plane uh, and recognized his shirt, actually, and I was like, oh, hey, uh, we were just talking about your, or that attraction, and he's like, yeah, I own it. And I was like, oh, oh shit, because he was literally coming back from uh, being on national television, because there was controversy around his, um, it's not even a haunted attraction, like, it is just straight up, they torture you for three hours. And you pay for it. Was that, uh, I don't know, if, um, McKamey Manor? Was that what it was? Yes, it, that's the one it was. Yeah. Okay, that's the one I had heard of that just sounded absolutely insane. And then there's, going back to the Urban Legends concept, there's there's a story of like, oh, there's an abandoned hospital and they just let, uh, they let uh, Marines run run loose and they can do whatever. You know, if you go to a, if you go to a certain floor, nobody makes it all the way out. They like, take, they'll take you out before you get there. And I'm like, what? Not like kill you, but like you right. know, you're not going to make it all the way up. You'll be like thrown down a garbage chute or something. And I was like, I would never <laughs> want to do that. Doesn't sound fun, you know. But no. now there's a, the haunted house thing has expanded to this this alternate reality game thing and like virtual reality experiences and like uh, spaces you can walk through, like um, uh, Earwolf, right? No, yes, no, meow wolf, not, meow wolf, meow wolf, the other one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you walk through wolf, a podcast network. <laughs> Um, but there is, uh, so as, as a youth and teen, I did do like haunted hay rides, which are very cozy because you're, you're under a blanket, uh, preferably with, uh, a person you find attractive and somebody might yell from a cornfield at you and, uh, throw candy and stuff. And that was delightful. I, I very much enjoyed that. That sounds fun. Yeah, that was pretty good. And then you get hot cocoa, uh, the other thing I want to do is um, they have paintball courses, which are uh, 
like zombie simulations that some of the places around here have done. And I always thought that would be fun because I, I don't know. You get to shoot stuff like that seems pretty cool. Do you, do you like, shoot uh, people dressed as zombies? Yes. With paintballs? That sounds. Yes. I don't want that job. What? <laughs> no, I don't want that job. Last time I went paintballing, I had a huge welt on my leg from getting shot in an unprotected area. So yeah, paintballs hurt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like to go to a horror themed escape room. I think that would be fun. Oh, I did do one of those with my girls. We did a, it was a J horror, uh, experience. It was very cool. Uh, the different rooms, like it, it, you had ring type videos that w- were set up and had different clues in them. Uh, and in this one, they actually like in one of the rooms, the walls shook when the ghosts would get close, uh, which was horrifying, but in a really kind of fun way, it wasn't they, they, a little bell would ring before, uh, to like, kind of let you know what was going on. I was okay with that. So it's like that 13 sounds... ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should rewatch 13 ghosts. Uh, That's... I remember as a 13 year old. Uh, being weirdly attracted to the boob ghost, even though she's <laughs> covered in open lacerations and stuff. That's that, that Joel Silver magic right there. <laughs> so, uh, what's what you guys got next? I got a note at the they're at the dinner table next at the restaurant. Well, first, uh, they meet Anne Marie, who lives next to the apartment where the woman got killed. Uh, and they meet her son, her, her infant son, Anthony. Uh, Anne-Marie tells Helen and Bernadette that no one is ever going to catch the Candyman. Uh, and Anne-Marie to... is rightfully worried, sorry, Josh, that yeah. they're there just to portray them as drug dealers, thieves, and addicts, basically, yes. is what, what the thesis of Helen's project is. And, she, you know, she's not that far off. Yeah. Uh... As far as, like, what Helen is going for, I mean. There's an absolutely brilliant cut uh, in this scene that goes directly from Anne-Marie's story and her talk of wanting to be taken seriously, and it cuts on the sound of uh, Helen's husband laughing at the end of Anne-Marie talking. And it's, like, the most grotesque point you could put on her statement of, like, I want to be taken seriously. These are real problems. And then you hear this like absurdly wealthy white man laughing in the next scene. And it's just ugh. like it makes those points without ever without someone ever having to tell you what's going on. God, I wish when I smoked cigarettes, I smoked when they allowed it in restaurants <laughs> because like just. Sitting around at it, that's like all I wanted to do when I was a cigarette. Cigarette. Oh my god, cigarette. You got it, you can do it. I'm having a stroke. (laughs) Cigarette smoker, there it is. (laughs) I didn't want to go outside and miss conversation for four minutes and then, you know, just... It looks so cozy to smoke right there next to everyone's food. And you know that's good for the flavor of the food. When you just have a hot box of nicotine smoke floating over all of the delicacies. It's a nice, it's a nice ambiance. It really fits in, like you know, it's not a real diner if you don't have like you know an, an ashtray next to your cheeseburger. <laughs> exactly. I only smoked in one bar, and it was in Nevada, and it was awesome. <laughs> 
I think there are still places you can smoke here, uh, like in a couple bars. Well, yeah, you, it used to be in Nashville. It was one side of the street had smoking and one side didn't on down, the downtown area that they yeah. had on Broadway. If I remember really? right. That's but interesting. Now, now it's a little different. But, uh, I mean, they all have rooftops, too, now. So I think people just go up there. Mm. I think. Well, I'm approaching two years, so it's neither mm. here nor there anymore. Yes. I think last time I went to the Villager, you could still smoke in there, which that's been a while. But Oh, that uh, place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's great. I drink. Yeah, I drink that on your birthday. They give you a dog bowl full of beer. Um, so there's that. There, that there is that. <laughs> but that place is a cave. Like there is no <laughs> circulation in there, uh, and it's just like an old storefront that's built long but not wide. And yeah, you just you come out reeking. The only reason it hasn't been renovated like and were sold off like everything else there has is because it's literally useless as anything else. <laughs> it's just this closet for drinking and smoking and playing darts. <laughs> this, um, does anything happen at this dinner scene? They they have their one big professor friend there with them at the dinner table, right? Yeah, I was just going to say this scene, everyone is horrible. Bernadette isn't, but everyone else, Helen, her husband and this professor all suck. They're just so smug and smarmy the whole time. Uh, They're why people hate academics. Yes. Like these people in a nutshell. Uh, Helen and the professor kind of spar back and forth. Uh, and the professor does tell us the historical background of Candyman. Um, he was the son of a slave who had made good money after the Civil War. And in rags to riches style... The Candyman is brought up in the best schools, and he's been accepted into polite society. He's a very talented painter, and is highly sought after by the rich to do their portraits, uh, until he falls in love with one of his subjects, and then she becomes pregnant. The woman's father hires a gang of hooligans to take revenge, and they chase him through Chicago to the area where Cabrini Green stands now. Then, they cut off his right hand, smear his naked body with honey from some nearby hives, and he is stung to death. Then they burn his body on a giant funeral pyre. That's fucking intense. <laughs> and hammered a hook into the stone. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, as this is being told, I love the gauze, the glaze that comes over Helen's face, but also the camera itself. Anytime she gets mesmerized, anytime she's near Candyman, mm -hmm. or he's listening to the story of Candyman, everything gets a little soft. And you just see her kind of have this like thousand yard stare as she's being pulled into this story and into this mythology. Virginia Madsen, by the way, right now, I think she's so wonderful in this movie. I, I've, I think she's great, and I first saw her in Sideways, and then kind of went backwards with her, but um, what a great actor, and she really, really elevates this movie. I think, uh, I don't know if this is true, but supposedly Bernard Rose had a hypnotist on the set and would hypnotize her uh, before, especially before her scenes with Tony, um, and put her into this altered state. Uh, they said it would take about 10 minutes of prep um, with uh, Virginia and Tony and the, the hypnotist to work it out. But that's like some insane dedication on everybody's part, I feel like. I have heard that story. I, I think it's true because I believe I heard it in a Virginia Madsen interview. But okay. I don't recall where. Um, 
but man, totally worth it. Yeah. Because that look on her face, she looks like she's daydreaming for eight minutes, basically. Like she's completely gone. I get that look on my face sometimes. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, and just completely out of my head and somewhere else. <laughs> Uh, um, Helen goes back to Cabrini Green to take more pictures and visit Anne Marie again. Uh, but this time she she's not home. Uh, but we do meet her dog uh, and a child named Jake, who this kid actor is so good. I, I love, this love this kid. This kid is hilarious. Yes, everything he says, like. He seems to have gravitas when he talks, and he's like six. <laughs> it does. He has I'm six. Like, what do he I has know? Like I'm this, six. <laughs> he has like the speech pattern and timing of a Morgan Freeman or yeah. something. <laughs> when he talks about, you know, uh, that that kid being on the toilet, and then Candyman came through the toilet, and they found it floating in there, and he goes, "Can't fix that." Better off dead. Yeah. <laughs> what a child talks like this? <laughs> the, uh, he leads Helen to the public bathroom where this assault happened and says that Candyman lives in there. And then inside, the place is covered with graffiti, but the words sweets to the sweet are smeared on the wall. Is Are they smeared in shit? Is it that looks, sh- It looks poopy. That's a lot of shit. That's a whole sentence. <laughs> That's a that was Michael- someone's multiple day projects. <laughs> and uh, sweets to the sweet was definitely something in the story that I remember. Um, they hit on it a lot harder, actually. That idea of like him being the candy man and the idea of sweets and stuff. This okay. movie, he's candy man, but this movie doesn't really have anything to do with candy. It's right. kind of they kind of like took a lot of this movie, including the title, but they seem to have just kind of left the candy part behind. I think they do it more in the sequels, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then in the 21, there's more candy involved. Yeah. Um, uh, so Helen finds a toilet full of bees. I don't like that image. That's upsetting. <laughs> uh and then she is trapped and attacked by a man who calls himself Candyman and looks like the the knockoff version of Tony Todd. Like, his jacket isn't as cool. His hook isn't as cool. Uh, it's not s- hammered into the stump of his arm, which his is good for him. voice is not nearly as cool. No. Uh, and as an aside, Tony when we were on set with him uh, would could kind of do these like Shakespearean rants, like out of nowhere. Like he just has that shit within him. Like he's done all this stuff. He is. I know that like he shows up at horror conventions and people are like, Oh, it's fun. It's Tony Todd. You're like, no, this dude is a really great actor. (laughs) Like the amount of weight that he can bring to something in moments is so impressive he's really really good in that um night of the living dead remake that oh, yeah. Tom Savini directed he's excellent in that movie yeah when we uh cast him uh that was the first thing i threw on because i hadn't seen it in years and i was like oh my god okay 
Like yeah. this is this is way better than I remembered because at the time, you know, I think it was on like DVD maybe uh, as well. And, the, and it, yeah, just watching it again, I was like, oh, like, I mean, obviously there's the original and then there's this, but I mean, it's about as good as you could do like for yeah. a remake. It definitely like uh, uh, held up really well, and I love the dynamic they have in it. He and uh, Patricia Tallman. Mm-hmm. Um, as the female lead, I thought it was fantastic, and, and uh, if I'm remembering right, and I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss uh, remember it necessarily, but I think there's like a very purposeful inversion at the end of the of the of the, mo- of the remake. There is that yes. really hits, like it may, it justifies the whole thing. You know, even if you were still on the fence, you know, watching it, like at that point, you're like, oh, like I, okay, all right, thank you for this. You know, like yeah, this was worth, that, this was a, a worthy pursuit. <laughs> that ending really like ties into the the Candyman theme of mm-hmm. just the general treatment of black people in this country and mm-hmm. how fucking awful it is. Yeah. Uh when Helen is attacked by the fake Candyman, he gives her like a roundhouse uh with the blunt side of this hook and it smacks right in the side of her head and there's a fantastic blood spray. Like the the timing on the effect is so good. It's a pretty quick cut, but it's just awesome. Like I just <laughs> I, there's something that we don't get when people use digital blood. Like there's something mm-hmm. like so good and visceral about seeing actual blood drops fly in a movie like this that I just love. It just never quite has the right feel or the right physics or the lighting doesn't quite match up. Um, I mean, 300 did it super stylistically, so it was ridiculous. But then I remember watching a Neil Marshall movie, Josh, um, uh-huh. Centurion, which was a movie that seemingly was forgotten by the world. And it's like a Roman army movie. And so it's a lot of sword slashes. So you'd expect a lot of awesome blood spray, but he opted to go post for everything. And so it just all the violence just didn't land, felt felt weak and watered down my one counter argument for this as for most digital effects is david fincher fincher has refused to use real blood because it takes too long to reset uh so for years now he's used fake blood there's not a ton of blood in his movies anyway but girl with a dragon tattoo has like a really kind of gory scene and it's all digital and i I think it was really well done there's one scene in particular in Gone Girl that there's no possible way that was CGI. They it's just like that. That yes. would be impossible. Yes, that was but my Gone Girl exactly. is. If, if you guys, if, if people haven't seen Gone Girl, I love that movie, and the casting of Ben Affleck is so perfect because you go into it not wanting to like Ben Affleck, and the movie's like perfect. We already got you where we want you. You don't like this guy. <laughs> So uh, we're at the point now where Helen uh, goes to the police station, right? And mm-hmm. checks out a lineup. Um, I do like at this point, she points out that two murders happen in Karini Green and nothing happens. But a white woman gets beat up and they shut down the entire place and round up everyone. Yes. But also just the way the cops say that we went from the top floor to the bottom and just rounded up. It's like, oh, so you just rounded up every black man because... Yep. Just because you're police and that's the only way you know how to do shit? Okay. Yep. That's, uh... That's Chicago. <laughs> that's the Chicago way for you. 
unfortunately. I yeah. I mean, that's kind of the national way. Yeah. Um, after this, uh, Bernadette managed to get some of the pictures developed from Helen's camera, even though it was smashed. Uh, Helen walks back to her car at the college. It, it's got a real loose grasp on time here because Helen's face, her eye is like swollen shut from the attack. And then like one scene later, it looks totally fine. Yeah, uh, it seems like it's been a, a week or two because the press that she gotten from being this victim seems like it's going to lead to her getting published. Yes. Um, when she's in the car park, she hears a voice calling her name, and there's no mistaking this voice at this point. Uh, oh, shivers down my spine with these two syllables. Uh-huh. Oh my god. It's incredible, <laughs> his voice. And it does, like... It would stop me in my tracks if if I heard it. Even if he was saying Helen, even if he wasn't saying my name, I'd stop. I'd be like, what the hell? I think it, it has if, stopped me in my tracks before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but if he was saying Josh, Duh. it wouldn't really work the same, though, man. <laughs> Something about Josh is just not a scary horror name. No, it's um the... Blandest white bread of names uh, that I could <laughs> that I could have possibly. Joshua hey, you're, Adam, you're allowed I mean, to say on. that. I'm not. Yeah. No, I've lived with it, man. I've accepted <laughs> it's. It's a nothing were you, name. Were you ever Joshua? Um. Occasionally, to my grandfather, I was Jocko. Uh, because, I, I like Jocko. That's cool. <laughs> because uh, it made my dad mad. When he would get my name wrong, so he purposefully would call me the wrong name, yeah. which I thought was hilarious. Uh, to my parents, when I'm in trouble, and occasionally it'll still be Joshua <laughs> or Joshua Adam. Uh, and to uh, my stepdaughter, I'm Joshy, which I kind of like, too. That's cute. You're, That's you're cute. Joshua Ickes on my Zoom screen. Yes. I have to use my full name uh, when I do press stuff. Okay. Because I had fake shimp up there uh, <laughs> in, in tribute to Sam Raimi, but people were like, who the hell are you? Yeah, there was a, a, like a, I think it went around not long after everybody started meeting on COVID. Somebody uh, dialed into a meeting for, and it was like Ass Blaster 3000. I was like, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> uh, I would have my. I played like a Dungeons and Dragons style yes. game for a while during quarantine. And so I'd pop up on another meeting and it'd be my characters. It'd be Simon Limey Sailor. <laughs> I was like, who the hell is that? Yeah, that confused me the first couple times. We were doing Jackbox or something and it was no. like, I thought that was Sean. <laughs> so I named, I named my character Simon Sailor. And then I was like, well, what's a nickname for a sailor? Ah, oh, British sailors used to be called Limeys. Brilliant. Nice. Um, so, yeah, again, she gets completely mesmerized. And, my God, the speech that Tony Todd here. Be my victim. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall. The whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now, I must shed innocent blood. 
Come with me. This this whole speech that he gives is so awesome. This the concept of this the the be my victim, like his he's playing the long game. He doesn't want to just hack and slash. Like he's actually got uh, uh, an ethos behind what he's doing, and it's to etch his name in history so people never forget him or what happened to him. If Tony Todd asked me to be his victim, yeah, sure. It's fine. (laughs) I find you this hypnotizing and sultry and, yeah, sure. If you you want to kill me with your hook, Tony Todd, go ahead. That's fine. At that point, if he yeah, if he wants to kill me with a hook, like I I did, I did something wrong. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I made him do this to me. I earned this. I deserve it. It's what is it the um uh in Little Nicky when they keep uh uh shoving pineapples up some? Oh no, no. Well, that's separate. John Lovitz keeps getting chased around by a horny pterodactyl because he was a he was a peeping tom when he, and he fell out of a tree and died. And the horny pterodactyl keeps trying to fuck him in hell, and he keeps screaming out, I deserve this! The whole time. <laughs> That's that me was, if Tony tries to kill me. <laughs> that was like one of the few Sandlers that I didn't see growing up, where I was just like, this looks this looks too bizarro, even for me, and I loved Sandler. I, I was such a water boy. Um, and this just, this just jumped it up happy. the list, right? <laughs> now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next scene we have Helen waking up, right, in the apartment. Yeah, she passes out when when uh, Candyman tells her to be his victim. Uh and then she yeah, she wakes up in a bathroom just covered in blood. Like there's so much blood. It makes me so happy. <laughs> it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it really does. Oh, it makes it makes you happy that it's a dog's blood. And that there's oh. a decapitated dog outside, Josh. So that makes you happy yes. that she's covered in dog gore. Uh. Well, you know, this is like our 14th episode. And I thought by this point, I would have convinced you <laughs> to not hate dogs. But you still <laughs> hate them, and I don't get it. That's, uh, <laughs> after I watched this the other day, I watched uh, Inside. And, spoiler for Inside, but there's some pet death in that one, too. And then you put on that episode of Chernobyl and said, why not make it a trifecta? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, that that is the worst episode of that show, right? Like, it's the hardest to watch. I I muted it. Also because I have dogs. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want my dogs to hear these sounds. So I was just like, I'll watch it, but I'm I'm muting this. I don't need I don't need these sounds in my life at all. Yeah. Uh, I have hearing. Oh, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. sorry, Go ahead, Andrew. The. uh, uh, the opposite thing happened to me because I was watching Wolfen the other night, and uh, there's a scene in that where a, a regular ass dog—I mean, supposedly tra- human transmuted into a dog—a uh, regular dog just like chomps a dude's head off, and I'm like, I don't want—I don't want him to think he can do that to me. <laughs> Lancaster, don't look. <laughs> Lancaster, don't watch. <laughs> but hearing, um. I don't remember the character's name, the the mother. Anne but Marie. hearing her screaming in the other room, we see her standing over an empty crib, screaming. It's so unsettling, and just everything about how this scene has set up, um, it's messed up. Now, at this point, she, she charges, she grabs a cleaver and charges Helen. Is that how this works? 
I th- Helen had the cleaver in her hand, I think. And then she, she just she attacks Helen. Oh, she starts slamming Helen's head on yes. the ground, which is like, it's a really easy way to kill somebody. Yeah. Just like, don't do that. Yeah, Anne-Marie like, is just bashing Helen's head against the floor, and Helen retaliates by swinging the cleaver and hitting her in the bicep. And it is gruesome. That's a pretty shocking moment, and like, this is a slasher movie, but there's not really there's not really that many like knife plunge scenes or anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but this is one of them. And it looks again, like you said, that real blood spray. And the fact that we just get one great like spurt of blood out mm-hmm. of that wound looks awesome. Uh Helen is taken to jail. <laughs> Understandably so. Uh and she has visions of the baby uh in the abandoned apartment in Cabrini Green, when her husband comes to bail her out, the outside of the police station is just swarming with reporters, and her uh, lawyer Josh, tells her... Josh, skips yeah. one scene that really makes me uncomfortable. It's when she's covered in gore, and she's being taken into the jail, and she's forced to... Strip, oh, disrobe. She's supposed to disrobe and strip, and she's covered in blood, and she's completely broken, and it just... This moment feels so dehumanizing of mm-hmm. the state taking in this person and just not giving a single shit about the human being who's hurting there. I mean, granted, they all think that she's a murderer and baby kidnapper, but but still, the, the lack of care in yeah. this scene is really, really upsetting to me. It's one of those things, So, like in The Exorcist, where the medical procedures are at least as scary as the demonic possession, if not more so. Um, yeah, the the that is... I remember that pretty vividly, actually. Like, that was like... (laughs) She also calls Trevor. It's 3 a.m. And nobody picks up the phone in their apartment. Yes. Um, I mean, Trevor, who is the actor who plays Trevor? You know, I was trying to place him. I know I've seen him in other movies. But uh, for the life of me, I I don't know what he's been in. Oh, it's uh, Xander Berkeley. I'm sure he's a nice guy. He just, he looks shitty though. Like (laughs) that's just his demeanor. Uh, And I'm sorry about your face, Xander Berkeley. Uh, He's the stepdad in Terminator 2. I know. I think think it's all connected. (laughs) Forever associating with that stepdad character. Who's also kind of shitty. Yeah. (laughs) Cause he's, he's cool in Apollo 13 though. Mm -hmm. Who is he in Apollo 13? Henry, who is that? I don't remember. He's in Heat? Who is he in Heat? He's Ralph! (laughs) (laughs) I see we're both looking at Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) He was also in 24, which is, I remember him, uh, I I think I didn't like him in 24 as well. The last thing I saw him in recently was The Dark and the Wicked. I don't know if you, you guys have checked that out yet. He plays a priest. Um, and it's, it's fucking creepy as hell. It's, he's really good at it. Oh, okay. Um, he's in, uh, X-Files. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing ripoff. The uh, ice, yeah. Yep. Air Force One. That's, that's my main connection to this guy. Mm-hmm. Air Force One, he's the piece of shit Secret Service agent who is the double crosser, I believe. See? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, I mean, he just has that face of a guy that's going to stab you in the back. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, Xander, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, 
So when uh, they go back home, Helen's husband says that he's got to go to the college to pick up some papers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She asked him where he was the night before, and he he, he was sleeping. That was late. He was sleeping. He's a tired boy. From all the st- students he bones, apparently. <laughs> I love now she she starts to examine the photos that she took. And I love in any horror movie when a character is examining any kind of media, whether it's found footage or a photograph or an x-ray or whatever, and then they find something in the background that like mm-hmm. shouldn't be there. Every single time that gimmick completely works for me. <laughs> and I, I like I love it. Like that's the entire movie of Sinister is just that. And there's a lot of issues with Sinister being kind of a shit movie, but th- there's some really, really good stuff in there that is just this stuff, and I love it. The, Sinister is uh... also I love it's that trope of when a character sees something horrible, so they just start drinking. And so Ethan Hawke is watching these movies, and at one point he's just like guzzling bourbon like yeah. it's water, and it just looks so preposterous. Like nobody can drink like that. This is insane. The uh, you will appreciate a certain sequence in Last Night in Soho. Then uh, they actually bust out microfiche at a certain point, which made me very happy when I was watching that movie. Nice. Just, yeah, just the idea of these people like hunkered over these old timey machines doing the, the microfiche search was like, oh, it's so something like that. It's so much better than looking at a computer screen for some reason. Um, Helen goes into the bathroom and she's kind of looking around and I think she's got like a weird vibe of something going on and she's walking around her apartment. And this is like one of this jump scare through the medicine cabinet. Mm hmm is not telegraphed in a way that like we've, we've talked about telegraphing jump scares on this show and how even I, as horror fans, you get a feel for it and you can spot it or you just feel them coming. This is one. The timing of this is so good. Even though when I know it's going to happen, I still jump because it's that offsetting to me. Yeah. The, the timing on it, it feels like uh, you're in a certain rhythm and then he throws it on an offbeat where the cut, the the shot that it happens in, isn't what you would expect. It seems like it's a safe shot, and that the dangerous shot is going to come up in a second. But it's exactly it's like right before you expect it to happen, and it's like Candyman's arm bursts through the medicine chest, and then Helen runs from the apartment, and she turns a corner, and he's standing in the hallway right in front of her, and even that, like, I'm like oh, it's simple. He just wasn't there, and then he steps around the corner, and he's there. That's fine. But in the movie, it totally works. I'm like, how did he do that? How did he get there? (laughs) I do love imagining, like, at this point, she then runs back into the kitchen. And I love Tony Todd. You know, he's standing there in his big Candyman form. And then as soon as the camera turns, he, like, tiptoes over to his next spot and then gets into the position. And then takes, like, the big ominous form again, and it's all scary. (laughs) Um, and then we get poor Bernadette shows up with some flowers to take care of her friend. And uh, Helen is completely, seemingly paralyzed by Candyman's presence. And she's barely even able to talk. And she can't tell Bernadette to run. And poor Bernadette comes into the house and dies. Uh, Trevor comes home to find Helen writhing on the ground, holding a knife. 
once again covered in blood, and Bernadette gutted from growing to gullet. Yeah. Uh, he's he's nothing if not honest, this Candyman. Yeah. His, no, that's what I'm going to do. There is I, one in a minute that he does a little different. I, I do love the detail here, which I had not picked up on before. Candyman leaves the stills of her negatives or whatever, the, the projector slides. Mm -hmm. He throws a couple of projector slides onto Bernadette's body, which I was thinking in my mind, like, oh, this is going to go to court trial, and they're going to present these images as evidence, and it's all just going to go to inflate his legacy even more. Uh-huh. So I, I thought that was just a really cool little thing. Oh, that's awesome. I hadn't thought about that. The uh, Helen wakes up just surrounded by police. She's handcuffed. Uh, they take her to the, I guess it's the psych ward. And she's got more visions of the baby. Once again, I don't understand the passage of time. I don't know how long this has been. Uh, apparently, Candyman is feeding this baby his blood? Is that what he does in one of the scenes? It like, seems like he's using the hook as a nipple. Yeah. For the baby to feed on. I, I don't know. It seems like it's a month that she's in. Uh, one thing that we didn't, uh, that I wanted to mention was that slashers are generally pretty silent. Mm -hmm. in, but when Tony Todd kills Bernadette, I don't want to be gross, but his grunting sounds almost sexual. Uh-huh. With just like, oh. Oh, it, it, but to me, it's like the amount of exertion that this guy is putting into his kills, dragging this dull hook through people's bodies that he's like grunting his way up it. It just adds an extra level of disturb, like disturbing nature to this slasher. Yeah. In addition to the fact that he talks and everything else he does that's so anti-slasher, it the emotion that he puts into his violence creeps me out. Uh, Helen is in the psych ward. She has another vision. Uh, she's strapped to a gurney and left alone in a room. She has another vision of Candyman visiting her and floating directly above her, like face to face. Um, and it, with like these best magic tricks type shots you know how they do it like if you think about it for half a second you can figure out how they did it but it's so effective in this movie i feel like it's just so well done and like the movie the way he's kind of floating there it's like ethereal and spooky and threatening all at the same time uh helen is strapped to a wheelchair and taken to see dr burke and it's pretty clear that she's on the hook for all the murders. Um, uh, I have wait for applause uh, in my notes here from the hook line. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, I have two things in my notes. If they strap me down to a bed on my back, I'd be screaming, no, strap me on my side. Yeah. I can't sleep on my back. <laughs> uh, the other thing is the nurse runs in and she's freaking out and he goes, quick, get me a thousand mils. A thousand mils is a liter. He's going to inject a liter of liquid into this woman. <laughs> That's a lot of horse tranquilizer. <laughs> no wonder she was asleep for a month. Uh, Burke shows her the security footage from when Candyman visited her. Uh, but it's just her in a room screaming by herself. Uh, 
And then she tells him that she can summon the Candyman. And he's super skeptical, thinking that she's just a basket case. So she looks into the mirror and says Candyman five times again. And nothing happens for a second. And it's almost anticlimactic. And then you hear a ripping sound. (laughs) Which, did Candyman go through the chair up into the guy's butt? Is, does, does this does this start in the butt? I feel I, like this starts in the butt. I feel like it's a butt thing. Yeah. Either way, fuck. This is <laughs> so gnarly. Tony Todd just popping up from behind the guy. <laughs> Again, <laughs> grunting as he bisects the man. Holy fuck, this movie's insane. <laughs> it's And it's to me, this is way more effective than even the, the uh, bisection in Bone Tomahawk that we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, because that happens pretty quickly and it doesn't seem like the, the troglodytes put much effort into it. This Tony is like fighting to get this hook through this guy's ribs and through the viscera of his body. And it's like blood is splattering everywhere. And it just seems like it's a lot of sweaty work to cut a man in half. Tony Todd's exit from this scene. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Again, it's simple wire work, but something about how he has his arms extended like he's Dracula. And then as the wires pull him, his arms come in and he does like a Dracula pose with his, like it's sucked out the window backwards. That's so fucking cool. Oh my God. That's so cool. Yeah. Why is it much more threatening than if like, if he had just disappeared or whatever? Like, he bursts through that window and gives Helen her route of escape, too. Yeah, this felt very, like, kind of Matrix escape scene from The Office, kind of. Yeah. Candyman is guiding her out. Uh, Helen uh, escapes by going through uh, over a ledge into an adjoining room, takes some keys from a nurse and uh, her nurse's uniform, and then runs back to her condo. This is another thing where I don't understand the time frame, because in her condo, one of her husband's students is repainting the walls of her house. Pepto-Bismol pink. Like, not just repainting them. She's painting the worst shade, too. Not just repainting him. Putting a color on the walls that nauseates me. <laughs> like We talked before of I had to break up with a girl because she was too saccharine, and that's yeah. when I learned how to pronounce the word saccharine. <laughs> like i feel like she would want to live in a pink walled house and just see this yeah like, dude what most professors i don't think would have their student that they're banging on the side move in with them like what what's trevor's mo yeah here why is he into this why is he allowing any of this to happen um one, one interesting uh aspect to the the, the pink wall is and uh, somebody brought it up in relation to I think uh, Paddington Two having the same color scheme as like Grand Budapest with like the pink prison stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a thing called uh, Baker Miller pink or drunk tank pink, which is supposed to be calming to patients that are behaving erratic, people that are behaving erratically. Uh-huh. So I wonder if that's part of the reasoning behind including that here because of what's going on. I I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I don't know the specific shade from the scene, and it may be slightly off, but it wouldn't surprise me, especially knowing that Bernard Rose is definitely operating in a more high-minded, like, 
you know, high, you know, high art, you know, yeah. um, uh, mode of filmmaking in, uh, in this. Um, I, that is an interesting thing that I did not uh, pick up on uh, when I last watched this for sure. Uh, I like that Trevor walks out of the bathroom, like just in his bathrobe. Like if you needed any more proof that he's begging this woman, <laughs> like he walks out <laughs> looking like uh, a knockoff Hugh Hefner. Yeah, that's like what what could we dress this guy in that would make him look like the biggest douchebag possible? It's like slick back his hair wet with a bathrobe on. Uh-huh. And I like, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I love when Virginia walks into the kitchen and the college girl sees her. The college girl's reaction of like she just like almost collapses and is yes. just like she just shrivels in the corner against the wall. It's it's really wonderful little scene. Uh, Virginia Madsen at this point man she's so good how she goes from this intense rage to a woman who's scorned to finally a despondent person who is completely alone now in her life Um, she's holding the phone out threatening the college girl to call the police and that part is like oh don't take that phone girl Yeah, (laughs) don't take that phone she's gonna kill you (laughs) (laughs) there's uh there's voiceovers that become more prevalent throughout the movie. Uh, Candyman talking directly to Helen. Uh, and as she leaves the apartment, he says, everything's been taken from you. All you have left is my desire for you. Which I hadn't thought of this in this light before, but if you look at Candyman as like an abusive romantic relationship, mm-hmm. the idea of like a bad spouse who controls you, and takes away all of your support beams and all the people in your life until you, they're the only person that you have left. Um, it just it adds another level to this movie that I hadn't quite considered before. Of like oh, their their romance and how broken their relationship is, if you want to call it a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the idea that Candyman sleeps. Like, he's, yeah. Candyman's just taking a snooze in his lair unless somebody calls him. I like that he exists somewhere in the physical world at all times, seemingly. Yeah. Uh, Helen goes back to Cabrini Green. She finds a hook. I like that there's just hooks lying around in this yeah. place. Like, the, and it's the kind that you pick up hay bales with. or that, like, They move a lot of ice blocks in this yes. town. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like how the walls, uh, every time we see his, his hideout, they're more and more covered in blood and gore. Like, they're just dripping and shiny. What do you uh, guys think of that spinning camera when Candyman and Helen essentially do, like, a dance? And you get that camera rotation, but it looks like the background is seeming, like, spinning at a faster rate than the camera's mm-hmm. rotation. I, I I thought it was a really... Normally that like spin around shot is it's been done a million times, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. this one, just the way it looked, I thought it was great. Yeah. It's, it's real, um, uh, Spike Lee or Hitchcocky feeling, uh, more Hitchcock because Spike Lee, I think does it actually in physical space. This one, uh, I'm pretty sure it's like there's rear projection and then, um, uh, Virginia and Tony were on a, a turntable, uh, and they're moving at a different rate than the background, which gives it this like super dreamy effect. That would make like, sense too, because like it didn't really seem like there was enough room to set up a complete dolly. Yeah. On mm-hmm. that set. 
but it also adds to like the dreamlike nature of it where their the rotation rates don't quite line up. Yep. And I think that's what I like about it is that it's not your typical spinning camera shot. It's a little bit tweaked. Like um, the, the Tommy and Carrie dancing in Carrie where it's like spinning out of control around them. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Very similar to that in terms of like putting a putting a twist, a purposeful twist on something that, like I said, like was a Hitchcockian aesthetic touch. Um, there's a mural in his hideout. Did he paint this mural and did he light these candles? I I, I had the same question. Who's painting this shit? Because he was <laughs> he was a painter. Yeah. So I guess we're led to believe that he's the one painting all this. Uh when she says that she will give herself over to him in exchange for the baby's life, and then Candyman opens up his jacket, and this is it's just a killer effect, him opening the jacket and his exposed rib cage just swarming with bees. I think it's so cool. And Tony Todd being the ultimate trooper, and that story of him putting his contract like a thousand dollars per bee sting or something like that. <laughs> yep. Seeing him with bees in his mouth, this is like my fifth or sixth time watching this, I don't know. It still unsettles me, and just to imagine my mouth full of bees crawling <laughs> around my tongue and my gums and my teeth like it it it's so disturbing but my god the imagery of it is <laughs> st stunning and it's something i don't think you can forget it's like the image of the movie i think it's yeah like, mm -hmm. you talk about candy man you're thinking tony todd and bees well there's and there's a reason that that i mean not to completely but that's the image that recurs in the new one uh when you know of him in that, you know, mode as much as possible. As yeah. close as they could get to it anyway. Supposedly it took them a half hour to load all the bees into his mouth. That's a long that's a long time just to sit with your mouth open, uh -huh. regardless of having bees in it. I feel like it's a short time to get off a shot though. Like that's pretty good for setup time. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I'm yeah. coming from right I, now. I'd be happy with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thirty minutes and we're ready to roll? Okay, yep. shit. <laughs> um so are we approaching the bonfire pile at this point yes the one note i had was uh when helen wakes back up and hears the baby crying she sees the mural again uh and the words it was always you helen are painted onto the mural and she realizes shit. They're just no no yeah just spray painted uh <laughs> and she realizes that she's like the reincarnation, I guess, of the woman that he died for. I yes, I wasn't sure if that's kind of what I took is that in the Candyman universe, death is not seemingly the end, mm -hmm. and so I think in some way Helen is the rebirth of this woman from the seventeen hundreds, um, or eighteen hundreds. Uh, but it's it's not. It's definitely not set in concrete. Yeah. Uh, so in the courtyard of Cabrini Green, the residents have built up this like mound of disused furniture and trash for a bonfire party that they're supposed to have. And Helen hears the baby crying from the center of this mound. And the mound is huge. Like when you see it as they walk past it earlier, it looks big. But when she's actually crawling up it, 
it's fucking huge. Like this thing had to be like 30 or 40 feet tall or something. It's insane. Also, it's a bonfire that has like tires in it and shopping carts, mattresses, (laughs) all sorts of things that are either not going to burn or they're going to burn and produce the most like horrible smoke and stench you could imagine. Yes. Basically like a, like a burn pit. Like they would do next to military bases, which is also not good. (laughs) It's, it's like the Springfield tire fire. Yeah. Uh, This is where, uh, so Helen starts to climb in and she's carrying the hook and that little kid from before we see, he sees, uh, just the hook descending into the pile. So he rallies everyone because uh, Candyman's in the pile and they're going to burn him. Um, they throw gasoline on it and light it on fire. Helen finds the baby and as she starts to climb out, Candyman grabs her from behind. And uh, yeah, we're getting to the end of the movie here. That's uh, Helen gets away from him and fights her way through the flames to get the baby back to Anne Marie. I like and, that she stabs him with a a fire plank of wood. Yeah. It, it's in his nasty ass chest. Yes. I thought that that was pretty cool. It's such a good like I don't want to say comic book because I I feel like this movie transcends that, but it's it looked it would look great as a panel in a comic book. Totally. Uh So Helen returns the baby to its mother and dies of her injuries uh, right there in front of a whole crowd of people. Watching her when her back is on fire, and then especially when her hair catches on fire once she's out of it, Yeah, it's really disturbing. Um, I'd say the only, the only effect that this movie is let down by is her, her burned scalp. Not uh-huh. necessarily in this scene, um, but moving forward, it doesn't look great uh helen is buried her husband brings his mistress to the burial yeah he did which i thought was utterly insane yeah uh when she is lowered into the ground her casket's lowered into the ground a parade of folks from cabrini green approach uh the little boy jake pulls out Candyman's burned hook and you tosses he has it like- into the grave he has like a Candyman jacket. Yes, it's like, ju- it's like a Junior Candyman jacket. Yeah, and it's also similar to one that Kramer wore on Seinfeld. And I was just—I wish I lived in a place that was cold enough to have that something about that like fur lining with uh-huh. the open lapel. I've always wanted one of those jackets, but I could wear it like three days a year where I live. <laughs> <laughs> and people are like, "Why do you even have that?" It's like preposterous for where we live. For these three days, I bought a really cool vintage leather jacket when i was in washington um because it was freaking the middle of winter and it was washington state and it was great uh and then i brought it back to nashville and didn't wear it for like three years because it never got cold enough yeah i'm just bitter about that (laughs) (laughs) so the baby is okay helen dies uh we cut back to the apartment later um the girlfriend is making dinner she leaves the fridge open as she's cooking, which annoys me. The fridge seemingly has some ground beef, Diet Coke, and beer in it. And <laughs> that's all that's in the fridge. And 
I love this scene because Trevor's in the bathroom and he's clearly just like, I fucking blew it because this lady who lives with me sucked and he's flashing back to like how awesome Helen was. And uh-huh. You see her cooking and like the vibe that she had in the house and everything. And yeah, it's just like, dude, you blew it, Trevor. Like, there's zero sympathy for you, my friend. Uh-huh. He is crying and he says Helen's name as he's looking into the mirror. You know, as you do for a lost love. And then Helen appears behind him with that hook in her hand. And gets him right in the groin with it. I I love the ending, but I'm not crazy about the strobe light execution. Yeah. It just... Because the movie hasn't really had that presentation style yet to this right. point. Like when Candyman shows up, Shit doesn't get all weird and stroby and blue lighting. Um, Candyman just shows up, you know? Yeah. So the fact that with her, and I don't know, maybe it's to hide the makeup or something. Um, I'm not sure. I, I really like the idea of the ending and of now Helen carrying on the legacy. But mm-hmm. the execution was a little missing for me. I can definitely see that. I think it's, uh, Helen doesn't have the same weight as Candyman when she shows up. It's a great narrative, like little button on it. Uh, but it's... Uh, I wish the sequels explored this idea uh, of someone else becoming part of his mythos. And it's... Uh, it kind of reminded me of the other big Clive Barker property, Hellraiser, where, yeah, Pinhead is like your main Cenobite, but all these other ones also have stories of how they turned into uh, these demons to some, angels to others. Like the guy with the CD in his uh, head. Like that guy. <laughs> What's his story? Oh, he was a he was a DJ. Yeah, yeah, he's in what part about, three. What about uh, camera guy? In part three. he was obsessed with cameras. The the main ones I remember are part three because yeah, <laughs> yeah. When uh, he goes crazy and I actually had a conversation, a Twitter conversation with Justin DeClue about this the other day, because Mm -hmm. I was like, part three sucks because they break the rules and Pinhead kills a bunch of people that didn't open the box. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said it's because Pinhead, the demon is, uh, is separated from his human side. And so all bets are off. And I was like, no, okay. Okay. Yeah. That showed you, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. He shut me up. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I do love that this movie ends. The last image is the college girl left holding the knife now. And it's kind of like Helen's cycle of being the victim and being thought of as the killer is yes. also and mm-hmm. uh, being looped. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's Candyman. I really hate that we now have to differentiate like Candyman 92 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, these we need to agree on a universal naming system, which I propose is all the old ones we still call Candyman and Halloween, and these new ones we just throw the year on the end. Candyman 21, mm-hmm. yeah. Halloween 18. Um, it just annoys the shit yeah. on me. The thing, there's, mm-hmm. you know... Well, the, the, the thing is the worst Breaking up the nomenclature yeah. is annoying. Because <laughs> not only... Because at least the Halloween 2018 is a sequel. I think I can, I can roll with it a little bit more, but the thing, 2011, is a Prequel. Prequel. I don't know. 
but yeah it's the, just um... it's just annoying uh just <laughs> yeah. producers it's just producers getting in the way and being annoying call it new candy man <laughs> I, I would prefer a new candy <laughs> we had new nightmare back in the yeah. day uh nia DaCosta's new candy man <laughs> people are gonna love it uh so what do you guys rate this movie uh andrew we we normally say our our letterboxed ratings for it oh, okay here at the end uh bearing in mind that i don't know what my mine is exactly oh yeah i'd probably i mean after i could see myself i'm between four and four and a half i think i have it at four right now but yeah a revisit would put it up i mean and i you know i apologize for not revisiting it <laughs> in advance of this but obviously but this has encouraged me to revisit it again soon because i mean it just fucking rules <laughs> it's, it's one of the best um for me ah i, I want to give it a five i do but it's just not quite a five for me. It's a four mm. and a half. I I think it's like that ending just doesn't quite stick it for me. And mm. um, but uh, Tony Todd, Virginia Madsen, and uh, is it Philip Glass, who's the mm-hmm. yes, the, yeah, the the three of them. And I mean, I guess you got to give the credit too um, to the director, but the three of them especially give such incredible performances. Um, this is an iconic movie and I'm really happy that it's aging so well and that every mm-hmm. time I watch it, it, it continues to just hold that line of being so good. I'm not sick of it at all. Mm-hmm. Josh, how about you? Uh, I get four stars and a heart uh, because it's a um, almost, I saw it at such an early age and it's stuck in there so well that it's practically like pre-critical for me. It's like when I watch monster squad and I'm like, there's problems with this movie, but I love it. It makes me happy. (laughs) Um, I also wanted to call out, uh, Bernadette, uh, the actress, uh, actor, Casey lemons, uh, shows up in this and she's Ardelia, the best friend in silence of the lambs. She had two of the best, best friend roles and two of the best movies of that time period. Like, does she survive Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. Yeah, she does. She doesn't get killed, right? Yeah. And let us not forget her small part in another one of the horror classics from this particular era. A little movie called Vampire's Kiss. Yes. <laughs> I've never seen it. I, I know. Uh, you are I've in seen, for a like, treat. <laughs> I've seen that one scene of Nicolas Cage in an office, mm. I think, acting all Nicolas Cagey. But yeah, I haven't seen it. It is definitely it has become kind of a, 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 a the, the meme or the joke version of of you know Nicolas Cage goes crazy, but it it really is just American Psycho only before American Psycho and people didn't get it basically at the time because it I think it's incredible like genuinely incredible but he's also I mean he is fucking nuts in it but in a good hey, hey Andrew <laughs> if you think he's nuts. Just wait until you see Richard Gere and how nuts he is in the Mothman prophecies. Let's go. And China just banned our podcast. Banned this episode. <laughs> um, you guys want to take a quick break before we jump into this one? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. 
So, Josh, I'm pretty sure you didn't have anything to say about this director and you just wanted to breeze past this one. Yep, totally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, I remember when this movie came out, uh, I was excited uh, because it was a Mark Pellington movie, which Mark Pellington had directed the video for uh, Jeremy by Pearl Jane, uh, which. Like that's that's formative text, as far as you know, uh, I'm concerned. And a couple years before Mothman, uh, he did a movie called Arlington Road, which I loved at the time. Um, I watched Arlington Road within the past year for the first time. Yes, really, really enjoyed it. Okay, good. It still holds up. I love it. Holds up too. Loved the ending. Took me by surprise too. Not to spoil anything, but Mm -hmm. I I liked that one a lot. Uh, Pellington also went on to direct my favorite music video of all time. <clears throat> and the one that I've stolen a whole, whole bunch of, uh, uh, the best of you by the Foo Fighters. So I like this guy. He hasn't done a whole lot of movies that I've seen since then, but he's still got a, a big old place in my heart for these couple movies and those couple of videos. This has some very music video ish moments <laughs> in it with like, just the way some of the transitions happen or some of like when you get like the two red lights of the police car and then they turn into moth wings as like the camera zooms it. Like there's a lot of music video flair, I think going on in this movie. Um, What do you think about the score for this movie? I was obsessed with it after I bought the CD after I went and saw it uh, in the theater. I think I went yeah, and picked the, it up the, from the Sonalux. score. The score is by uh, Tamandanendi. <laughs> yeah, it's by Tom and Andy. Uh, but I, I, I like to try to come up with a fun way to say their name. Um, the score, the score, I think works really well at times. And then there was like one or two times where it's like, this feels like an erotic thriller. Like the way the music and the editing, and when mm-hmm. Richard Gere's driving down the dark highway by himself, it's like this feels like sultry, and like he's gonna have sex at the end of this drive or something. I don't know. There's something it's weird about it. <laughs> because most of the score is like kind of ambient and this kind of free floating um, not exactly atonal but it seems uh, it's not a traditional movie score and then a couple scenes it shifts into like uh, Bernard Herman strings and everything mode and it's just it's kind of weird in those scenes I think. Totally because right off the bat um, the intro gives me like session nine vibes mm-hmm. where we're mm-hmm. being shown an image that we don't really know what it is. And there's just this kind of unsettling ambient background noise that's being passed as music and that just like the weird visuals. And um, I, I know why people say this movie freaked them out back in the day. Didn't quite work for me. Now there's a couple moments that like I did find creepy but I think a lot of it has to do with like when the score is right and, and everything's just right with this movie, I do get that like really unsettling feeling from it. Mm-hmm. Um, do either of you know why they changed the character's name? So what's, what's the background of this? Because this is right off the bat. This says this was a true story that took place in the sixties or something, but so many movies, like I, we're doing that around this time of like, oh yeah, it's a true story. 
So uh, you know the Cullen brothers were doing it with Fargo. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Texas Chainsaw remake, and just so many movies were under the guise of reality. Yeah, my the... uh, my, my guess is that they went far enough afield uh, from. I know uh, I watched a little bit of the making of with Mark Pellington uh, on that's on the uh, Blu-ray. I think it's on the DVD as well. Um, it's two parts. I actually really want to finish it. It's like, I think about an hour long, but it seems like it reminds me just from the beginning of it, of the documentary about Magnolia. Okay. Um, and that it's like very, like for very unvarnished, very first person, very warts and all. And he's very up, upfront about like, I wanted to make a real movie. You know, I want to make something that's about something like he's very, like apparently having a lot of fights with the producers about it and stuff. And I think maybe one of the, one of the things that may have come out, out of that was the fact that he had a story he wanted to tell that may not have matched the true story. So they were just like, let's change the names. He may have pushed for that would be okay. my assumption is to just make it, to give him the creative leverage to do more with it. Now I don't know why they've changed weird things like the number of the people that died in the, you know, that, that, um, not to jump too far ahead. Sorry, but they did change the name, the, you know, things like that. I don't know why that particular thing was changed. It might just been a typo. Um, but knowing the screenwriter Richard Haddam is also a frequent contributor to the Astonishing Legends podcast, which is about they explore like cryptozoology and like uh, folklore and mythological things, uh, UFO sightings, that kind of thing. And they've done episodes on the Mothman. I believe he was even on one and he did a long interview with them um, talking about his work on this movie as well. Knowing that he's a true believer in this kind of stuff, I feel like he also kind of, you know, I think Mark Pellington was just like, I want to make it. I mean, a story about grief, a story about, you know, uh, grief and like um, trying to find your place in the world after you something truly tragic happens to you, trying to the, the pursuit of trying to prevent tragic things from happening to other people because you feel like because it happened to you, you know more about how to, you know, you understand it better and you can help prevent, you know, and then being unable to do that in some cases and well, uh, being unable to do that at all, really, and having to, you know, make peace with the fact that like, just be great, you know. Be grateful for what you have. Um, that's the thing that he wanted to do. That's what came across to me more clearly this time than anything. Because it used to creep me out like crazy, like the injured cold phone call and stuff, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, this time, it, the, the, the creepiness didn't land for me, but the emotion of it did. Mm -hmm. All of it. So I, I was really surprised. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, that was, no, that was great, Andrew, because I think you're totally right. And one thing that maybe I didn't focus on enough is um the survivor's guilt part of things and the fact that this guy is so guilt-ridden over being in the car with his wife and not having done something that now he can't live with himself unless he tries to stop death essentially mm -hmm. and like control things and we get that scene at the end when he finally breaks where laura lenny's like earthquakes are going to happen planes are going to crash you can't do anything and mm -hmm. he's Richard Gere, um, he's like really hardline stoic through like a majority of this movie. Mm -hmm. I like it because it's he feels devoid and empty after his wife passes. But I sometimes wish I would get a little more out of him emotionally mm -hmm. um, or just a bit of a bigger performance in certain scenes, especially when he's going up against Will Patton, who I... Yeah. Fuck, I love Will Patton so much. <laughs> He's so good. Uh, this movie starts, though, with uh, Richard Gere. His name is John Klein in the movie with his wife, Mary, and they're looking at a house. This house that they're looking at is like a <laughs> mansion. <laughs> There's a realtor walking around with him. He leaves them 
Are they going to just start fucking in the closet with the realtor there? Yeah, he can yeah, just man. stand right outside the door. It's fine. I ha- have you met Richard Gere? <laughs> I don't like this couple. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, speaking Wait. speaking of Richard Gere, I only there's like two movies I know Richard Gere from. It's this <laughs> and Runaway Bride. And Runaway Bride was a movie that I don't know why, but I watched it three times, I think, as a kid. Um, but what what do you guys connect with him? Uh, um, I don't know. Officer and Gentleman was... that was Yeah, that was the other one I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah I would say uh, Days of Heaven is probably the first thing I think of, or American Gigolo, even though I haven't seen that in years. Um, but also, I think uh, he and I... Well, he and I share the same birthday, so that's kind of fun. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, I always think of my friend Andrew, who uh, has the same birthday as... Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, also, here's one for you, Sean. Uh, he was in Hachi, A Dog's Tale. What's that? That sounds depressing. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, it's a story... Like, there's a... It's a, based on a true story. There's a statue of this dog... Okay, do you remember the, the Futurama episode with Fry's dog? Oh, uh, wait, is this at a train station? Yes. I know the story, and I have not seen that episode, but I do okay. know the real-life story of this dog. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a movie about that dog that just waits for its owner at the train station? Yeah. Oh, no, that, yeah, I'm gonna cry just thinking about that now. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really pretty good. It's very enjoyable. <laughs> um, when they're about to fuck in the closet, there's a little moth flying around, and I have no idea if that's relevant to the actual mm-hmm. Mothman or not, but just a little thing. Um, I have to say, scene- I, yes, wait, I, don't, I don't want to be crude, but, you know, it's the late night version here, right? So we can say things. Uh, if I was locked in a closet with either Deborah Messing or Richard Gere, I might be getting freaky. I think I'd be okay with it. I also like the idea that they haven't had sex in such a long time that... When she took off her underwear, a little moth fluttered out. I think that gag actually happens in scary movies, which I, you know, came up before this. <laughs> oh, um, you know, you might, that's ringing like a very distant bell in my head. You might be right about that. But uh, uh, also delinquency on the part of the realtor. I mean, you got to look up for this house. What if these people don't buy it? You know, you're going to have a fucked in closet you're trying to sell. Uh-huh. <laughs> you have to disclose that. <laughs> this closet got fucked in. <laughs> uh, so they decide to sell the house, celebrate. They get in a car. It's nighttime. There's snow all over the place. And they decide that they're going to, Deborah Messing's going to test how fast she can drive the car right now. Yeah. This is not the time to be like testing your metal behind the wheel. What are you doing? I will They're say, horny. <laughs> the one <laughs> honk if you're horny. Uh, <laughs> the, the one one thing that I like when I was saying I keyed into the emotionality of it all. It really doesn't start. It it's just the broad idea of loss. It's because the fact that them as a couple are kind of insufferable. Um, like I don't at, like. It's it's just sad that they're not a couple, you know, that he loses her, because like, it's clear that he cares about her, but as, like, a ha- the happy couple part is, like, a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a lot to take. <laughs> yeah. So, as she's driving down the road, she gets a vision of, like, the red moth wings or something, and the car starts spinning. I thought for sure they were going headfirst into a tree or something, but the fact that 
her head gets thrown into the side window just from the centripetal force of the spinning car mm-hmm. makes it more disturbing to me. Because mm-hmm. this is like an accident that seemed like such a small thing, mm-hmm. and yet her head cracked the window. And mm-hmm. it just, it, the presentation of it unsettles me. Especially when... Um, and like, like, I think the year before that the film, uh, along came a spider has this, like, I think at this point, infamously horrible CGI car crash for no, no real reason. And it's like, you know, they could have gone that route, but Pellington, you know, kept it reined in and uh-huh. it, yeah, the modernity of it is like the, what, what really sells it. Like from that moment on, it's like, Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. You know, like we're a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're in the hospital now. And she has some kind of brain injury head wound going on. And um, the scene when they're in the hospital and she tells Richard Gere, I just want you to be happy. And she apologizes for ruining everything mm-hmm. that broke my heart. That, that that feels very truthful to me. Like that's one of the that sets up for me the emotionality better than them being playful lovers did. Because that feels real. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think we saw them at a peak as far as like their financial success and everything. So we just saw them when they were at their most arrogant mm-hmm. and cocky when we were introduced to them. And so, of course, they were annoying. But mm-hmm. seeing this part of their relationship, I do get a better feel for how they are as a couple. And it seems like they're a good couple. Mm-hmm. That's. But they're the same as uh, the beginning of the Sixth Sense when. Uh, they come home and he's he's just won the award and everything. It's the same vibes, uh, but they don't have like I don't know the the same right to be as high as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. You they did buy a really big house mm-hmm. for just the two of them, which seems ridiculous to me. So maybe that makes you that kind of happy. I don't know. Uh, so an MRI reveals that she's got a tumor. And before too long, she passes away. Uh, Most of this film is in the editing. Like, there's not, they don't underline a lot of the things, which I kind of enjoy. Because it is, Mm -hmm. it feels like a more adult kind of movie movie. Um, But they also don't edit a lot because this movie's two hours long. Yes. (laughs) You you feel those two hours by the end of it. The the shots of John running through the, uh, the hospital that they kind of play later in the movie. Uh, it feels like it should be in like a political thriller mm-hmm. rather than this. Like this movie is a cross between an X-Files episode and like kind of a serious drama. Like mm-hmm. it's got the police procedural kind of stuff and then his arc, but it doesn't feel like it should have this energetic of editing that they use. And, and it, the snap zooms and the, uh, uh, the Tony Scott kind of uh, mm-hmm. multiple exposure stuff. I thought watching this movie, I was like, ah, this, this feels like 1998. I was a little surprised <laughs> when I saw 2002. Cause it's uh-huh. just something about like, it was still in that like MTV editing era or something, you know, like everything mm-hmm. has to have such polish and presentation and like little tricks to it that we can't just simply move from one scene to the next. There has to be a gimmick or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, sorry, after his wife dies, he's sitting in a snowy park, and one thing I thought was like, 
if this movie were like a spring or summer movie, mm-hmm. it would have a completely different feel oh. and would not work in the slightest. Yep. But mm-hmm. this being right around, like right before Christmas. Also, I love that this is like a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it, it adds such atmosphere to it. The one of the orderlies points out uh, that John's wife, Mary, had been drawing angels, quote, angels in her notebook. Uh, and he thought that that meant she knew th- that she was going to be taken care of in the afterlife or whatever. Are but, you guys concerned about this orderly's definition of what an angel <laughs> looks like? Those look like mothmans. Those aren't angels. Those are creepy mothmans. I like to imagine that the orderly <laughs> has been mistakenly going to like a demonic satanic church all his life and thought it was Christian. So he's like, yeah, you know, the angels with the horns <laughs> and the big devil wings. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, two years later. <laughs> yeah. That's what we get. Two years later. Uh, Richard, someone's trying to set Richard Gear up on a blind date. Have you guys ever gone on a blind date? Like a yes. set up friend once, blind yeah. date? Yeah, Ooh, once. Really? How did that go? Not well. <laughs> she, she was a phlebotomist. What is that? Um, I mean, it sounds familiar. Blood, blood she's a vampire. That's yeah, a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, but so, you know, uh, the downside, it didn't work out on the positive side. Now I, I'm, not, I'm never going to die. You have to stake me now. So <laughs> that, that part's cool. <laughs> Josh, how about you? Uh, this was like, God, would have been like, I was like 19 or 20 at the time. And we, I was set up on a date. We went to a movie. And watched the remake of House on Haunted Hill. So whenever, what year was that? The Liam Neeson one? Yes. That was like 99 or something, I think. Yeah, that sounds you're thinking right. of uh You're thinking of The Haunting, but they were both the same year. With Liam oh, Neeson. Was, oh, oh was shit. There, yeah. Was there mm-hmm. two of them that year? We're, it was uh, uh, Jeffrey Rush. Hill was, yeah, Jeffrey Rush. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, we went and saw that movie and then went back to her place and watched Austin Powers. It was a, I'm not, <laughs> were you feeling good... Randy? <laughs> <laughs> Overall, not a bad date. We just never got back together again. That doesn't sound like the worst time. No, yeah. it really wasn't. She didn't take my blood. <laughs> We've already gotten several multiple Sean dating stories. On the show. I mean, every online date feels like a blind date in one way or another. They're all just like the idea of looking at somebody's photos and then maybe texting them between five and 15 times before you like there's zero chemistry. It's like when you meet in person for the first time, it it's like it's a blind date because you suddenly realize, like, I have no idea who this person is. I have no idea what they actually like sound like or how they carry themselves. Mm-hmm. This is just preposterous. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a little disheartened with the online dating. Oh yeah, I can't I, tell. <laughs> I had I had a really really horrible online date, which is very like because we talked online, but everything that I found out subsequently was nothing we talked about. You know, like she's like, hey, like why, why don't we just you know we'll meet at a park and we'll go we'll go eat it like Ruby Tuesdays or something. I was like, okay, and then we get to Ruby Tuesdays and she works at Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> well, you got to get that employee discount. And I, I was like, oh, like so you're going to pick up the tab so we get the employee discount, or can I get it for both of us? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think after yeah, that was an that was an interesting. She was very very unique person. Hey, I wish her well. She's passionate about her work, you know. You yeah. can't blame her. Hey, you got to bring, you know, that's how she brings business in, you know. She's proselytizing about Ruby Tuesdays. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, so, uh, Richard Gear, I don't quite know why he he says he's going to get go towards Richmond. Um, yeah, he mm-hmm. he yeah. doesn't go on a date and decides to drive across the state instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, his car breaks down. This is another question. If your car breaks down on a lonely highway like this in the middle of nowhere at 2.30 in the morning, are you guys walking down that dark highway looking for someone, or are you sleeping in your car? Because I'm sleeping Um, in my car. I am not wandering around people's houses at 2.30. um, Well, there is a question. So this is pre-everybody having a cell phone, although cell phones existed. So taking that out of the equation... I don't know. I might, I might get tired of being in the car. Um, cause there's always, you know, if, if you sleep in your car, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. I'm on the picked up for vagrancy. I would sleep in my car. I would sleep in my car and then go in the morning because Mm -hmm. I don't want what happens to him to happen to me. That frankly was my thinking too. Um, (laughs) I mean, I was more thinking, I didn't realize there was a house so close down the road. I just thought he was just going to start walking down into, like, the dark forest down the road just looking for someone. But, no, I'm staying with the car. But, dude, in my in my house, if somebody knocks on my door at 2.30 in the morning, either the town is on fire or it's someone up to no good. And, like, either way, it, it I'm... It's bad. I'm grabbing both dogs and having them like right there at the door with me when I answer it. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> you're going to get uh, stranger. Yeah, we get introduced here to Will Patton, and I got so excited when Will Patton <laughs> was introduced to this movie because, like, yes, this is the breath of life I needed. I mean, Laura Linney, as we meet her later mm-hmm. or soon, she's really mm-hmm. great. But Josh, you mentioned Will Patton has done Audible books. Yes. Um, I I don't remember which one, but I did download one of them, and it seems like he's done a bunch. But something about his slight southern twang combined with his voice. I don't know. Like He's always... I find him endearing in every movie, whether it's mm-hmm. um, up that Armageddon or mm-hmm. Gone in 60 Seconds or um, Halloween 18 and Halloween Kills. Like, I just love the guy and am happy to see him on screen every time. His um his beat before they go up in Armageddon with his uh where he calls to talk to his that's the strongest emotional moment in the movie. It's fucking incredible. I'm getting emotional uh-huh. just thinking about it now. It's so good. <laughs> I his story is really really heart wrenching mm-hmm. in that movie. Um. I, I don't know. It's something about what, what would you say that that's a that's an actor who carries a lot of pathos with him or just I don't know. There's something about him. I just find so empathetic in every performance. I think it's everybody. And he's he, he's good. at. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. Uh, go. I was just gonna say he's a that guy for me where I just point and say, oh, uh, it's that guy. He, everybody has like a, a father figure or a father, or, you know, or like a teacher or a coach or, so, you know, like he's a remember the time, you know, everybody had. 
everybody has that character, that person in their life that they look at. And he's very, he's, a, he's just peerless at embodying that. Mm-hmm. Um, Remember sure. the Titans. That's a good pull. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was in a, he, he was on a run. He was in like every other Bruckheimer production for a while. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the audio books, he did all of the, uh, the Bill Hodges, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King books, the Mr. Mercedes and Finders Keepers, uh, End of Watch, and The Outsider. Um, mm-hmm. He did all of those, and like he's inextricably tied to those books for me now. Like mm-hmm. his performance in those is because uh, I think I read the first one and then did the audiobook later, uh, and it's better than reading it. It really is mm-hmm. like. I just want him to come and, and read me to sleep every night. <laughs> you know, it's tripping me out. He looks so much like Ryan Gosling in this movie specifically. I was like, <laughs> if Ryan Gosling put on 15 pounds and was balding, he's like Will Patton Jr. <laughs> so basically, if, uh, when Ryan Gosling uh, gained, uh, like put, uh, put on like the ball cap or whatever to be in the Lovely Bones, and he like gained all that weight, maybe mm-hmm. he looked like Will Patton. Maybe. Got it. Or um, what's that relationship movie? Um, Bl- blue the, something. The no- oh, blue oh, Valentine. No. Blue mm-hmm. Valentine. Yeah. Oh yeah, that yeah because I was like I had I didn't see him. Yeah, it was around the same time, and that's when he had the thin hair thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you got next? Because I have uh, after Laura Linney is in- initiated or in- introduced, excuse me, to the movie. Um, I got Richard Gere looking for a map. Well, did did you mention that Will Patton greets him at the door with a shotgun? Uh, and that's why no, we, we kind of did so much Patton yeah. talk that I kind of forgot to mention <laughs> what actually happened in the scene. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> he, Will Patton plays Gordon, uh, and he says that John has been showing up at his house the last two nights at 2.30 in the morning asking to use the phone, just like he did tonight, but this time he was ready for him. Uh, and this is when Laura Linney is called in. Uh, so Will Patton like keeps him there in the in the shower. I guess so. When he shoots him, he doesn't mess up his house. That mm-hmm. sounds like that seemed like such a Cohen Brothers idea to me. Of like, <laughs> oh, this guy's gonna put him in the shower to make the cleanup easy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Lenny plays Connie, uh, who seems to be the only police officer in this town. Even though there's a whole police station, like I didn't know if she was the sheriff or. Or what, but the size of this town seems to feels like it fluctuates because mm-hmm. it feels like totally rural and like there's 15 people in it. And then at the end, it's kind of a, a bustling little metropolis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the elements that I think um, is is overall a little like there's a couple things that just in terms of the narrative, like we mentioned earlier, that it's it's almost two hours long. I think there's two things that are consistent throughout the movie. We we don't get a great grasp on like the location and the environment of the town, or at least as much as I, you know would have been preferable for something so like regional. And we don't get a great sense of the passage of time, uh, mm-hmm. which I think starts with the two years later thing, where it's like, oh, and now he looks exactly the same, and it's just two years later, and like he's doing other stuff. Um, it could have been immediately afterwards for all that it makes a difference, you know. And I think that yes. continues. Um, be an issue throughout especially as he's unraveling the mystery it's like has he been there for weeks like you kind of go back and forth yeah because and they might say that's in, 
intentional, mm. like the lack of time knowledge. But I don't. Th I think it's more an execution thing than mm -hmm. than it is something related to the actual script. Yeah, yeah. it some it somehow feels like four days and four months at the same time. <laughs> like he keeps talking to his coworker who tried to set him up on the date, and the guy is like, "Well, the editor is really worried." John Klein is a uh, is a newspaper uh, writer. Mm. He's a newsman. He's a newsman. Uh, <laughs> and apparently one of the best, according to the editor, uh, which is why he winds up writing a book about his experiences, which then gets turned into this movie. Uh, but John goes to a hotel in town and he tries to find the town on a little map. It, they're in Point Pleasant. Uh, is that the name of it? Point Pleasant? I believe so. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he discovers he's on the wrong side of the state from where he thought he was. He somehow did like six hours of traveling in about an hour and a half. This movie does a couple things like this. And I think they're some of my favorite moments of this movie is the unsettling things that don't make sense, whether it's time or geography. So like, he's looking at the, Oh God, speaking of geography, he's looking at the border of Virginia and Kentucky on the map oh god i'm exposing my <laughs> but instead he's he's looking at the wrong border and the guy's like no you're on the border of west virginia and then when in later ohio he says, i drove 400 miles in 90 minutes yeah. like <laughs> that stuff in this movie is the stuff that unsettles me and i find the creepiest well and then later we'll get to the phone call which is awesome mm -hmm. yeah um, but those are the really fun stuff for me in this movie is the stuff that just doesn't make sense, whether from a distant standpoint or just the fact that he's been to Will Patton's house three times in mm -hmm. a row, you know, that sort of stuff is fun. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he's on um, Point Pleasant is on the border of Ohio because it's the Ohio river is uh, the, where the bridge into town is. Um, mm -hmm. It's like right on the border apparently. Yeah, actually, uh, where I, uh, I went to college uh, was about 45 minutes away, because I know people would sometimes drive down there to buy Everclear, because they didn't have Everclear. And Yingling. They would drive to buy Yingling and Everclear, because okay. they weren't in Ohio at the time, yeah. I've never had Everclear. It's illegal in California. It should be. It's <laughs> we, uh, we, we, I remember in college, a friend was like, I'm going to put Bailey's in this shot of Everclear so we can see what happens. And oh. it curdled. It curdled immediately. <laughs> so that's what's happening inside your body every time you drink it, basically. Like, when I go home and my mom's, I, if I get coffee and my mom's like, oh, come on, have a little Baileys in your coffee. I'm just like, one, it's 8 a.m. <laughs> Two, it tastes like ass. I'm sorry, <laughs> mom, but I just don't like it. Wait, um, Andrew, what was it? What goes in a Hyper Viper? I've been trying to. Oh, remember no. this <laughs> you know, when, I know when, what comes uh, out of a hyper viper when I suggest you know when, when I, I suggested the mob and prophecies I knew we're gonna have to talk about this uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, it's a king cobra uh, preferably a king cobra 40 and you drink half of it down and then you pour a sparks and the rest of it it's like an alcoholic energy drink four loco was similar I don't think they make it anymore because people died um I don't know if they make sparks anymore either, but yeah, it was an alcoholic energy drink. Um, and then, yeah, you just, it's like $4 and you don't need anything else. You are drunk all night and you are up until four in the morning. <laughs> that's, 
That's a real fighting kind of drunk. Mm. That's how <laughs> the doctors will trace this. They'll be like, uh, oh, what, why is, are his, like, when my organs fail, they'll be like, why did that happen? <laughs> and then they'll unearth this podcast. From, <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, okay. Your heart explodes and your liver corrodes at the same <laughs> yeah. time. It's great. Around this point, uh, Laura Lenny says that a, a couple people in town have reported seeing uh, the Mothman, right? Mm-hmm. And we're going to go check out their stories. Uh, yeah, they meet up. Uh, John and Connie meet up at Gordon's house again to stake it out. Uh, kind of inadvertently. And I like how she tells him that the people that have reported things, not the town speed freak, good church going folk. That's how she puts it. <laughs> the She takes John to the police station. Like immediately she gives him access to the records and reports uh, and says that people have seen lights and a red eyed thing. Uh, but it's a Mothman. Like, it's it always looks like a giant butterfly man in all these <laughs> pictures. It it's either a demon or some kind of butterfly. So, uh, they go to talk to one of the women who's claimed to see this vision. She says the figure had red eyes and was eight feet tall. And then I like, like this lady. She this lady feels very real. Yes, like this this lady does feel like a citizen of a small town in America. Like this, just I. I Something about her, I just feel real and true. I like the firemen that they go and see. I like that they have like yeah. this fire chief guy who's clearly like a dude who wouldn't just make this up. Uh, and the the guy, we only see a couple angles of the firehouse, but I feel like it really sets it up that these are uh, everyday folks who are seeing this thing. I like that the fire chief guy says that he's getting so many calls that he recorded them. And yeah, sounds his recordings sound like avant-garde metal or something. <laughs> like just soundscapes with screams and things and weird noises. Um, when he says that he changed his number and he got a phone call before he could even tell people what his number was. Yeah, that's another little moment where I'm like, "Ooh, Mothman, you creepy." Uh, I think through here is where I really felt the X Files vibes because it just mm-hmm. feels like a, a supernatural procedural. This is kind of my. Some of my favorite little sequence of this movie is when they're just going around the town listening to people's stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really, uh, it also does feel like kind of an episode of uh, Astonishing Legends. Like, yeah, where, where the, they're just, yeah, just piecing together the like from uh, from like eyewitness testimony and stuff like that, and getting all the evidence together to try to piece it all into yeah. something that makes sense. And I also think, especially, and I don't want to, I think this is either next or coming up soon, but the kids in the car. Yes. They're next, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, there. that scene, that is in X-Files with Alien. It's just Aliens instead of Mothman. Like, yep. that particular one, like, exactly. Um, and I thought that was really well executed, the way they, um, with, like, the bleeding eyes, too. It's like, mm. Yeah, get, the guy gets eyeball stigmata. <laughs> <laughs> but I did like the... Again, it's like so hyper stylized that scene mm-hmm. where they're in the car and there's like a blaring light on them. Mm-hmm. And then when you look into the light, you can kind of see the silhouette of, mm-hmm. you know, a man or something there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's so big. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so big what they're doing with these presentations. It does. It feels uh, like two different 
things because it's this kind of kind of dry dramatic film in a lot of places and then you'll have this crazy editing uh and camera tricks kind of portions that i guess it's the early 2000s man that's just how it feels <laughs> richard gear really annoys me josh you probably relate to this what the fuck is he doing with that blanket he's taking a nap and he just like grabbed the blanket and just like pulled it over half his body uh-huh. he's lying on top of his he's half blanketed fully clothed taking a nap and i'm just like you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, not nap procedure how else is the uh, how else is the gerbil supposed to get in Oh, oh, sorry, Andrew. Sorry, sorry, sorry Richard. I didn't bring out. it up. Okay. <laughs> uh, one of these nights, John gets a call. Once again, we don't know how much time has passed. Uh, John gets a call. It's just a bunch of weird sounds, like uh, the fireman was describing. And then John runs into Gordon, Will Patton in town and Gordon tells him that he had a vision the night before and that he made a drawing of the Mothman, which not only do these drawings look like his wife's, they all look like the same person made all of them uh, in the exact same style. The scene before this has a shot where Richard gears in the bathroom and we get a reverse shot from inside the mirror. Yeah. And it feels like the Mothman lives inside screens and mirrors and Mm-hmm. telecommunication devices and mm-hmm. we we did we get those shots a few times where we're watching people through their television or something mm-hmm. but that one where he has the photo of his wife up in the top left corner of the mirror and then we get the shot of him and now it's top right and it's the back of the photo i loved that little moment that was so cool uh yeah i was gonna call that out when they see the uh it's just like two scenes from now uh but they're looking at the TV, then you get the TV's POV and it turns to that weird staticky, uh, reminds me of, uh, there's a scene in 28 days later where they use this kind of painting effect in the, in the foreground because the resolution was so bad on the film <laughs> that they had to make it look like something. Uh, but it, yeah, it gives that same kind of surreal effect to it. I'm, I'd be curious to know what shot you're talking about with 28 days later. Cause off the top of my head, I'm not, I'm not remembering it. Oh, it's just after they, um, I believe it's just after they're in the supermarket and there's the, uh, what is the song called? AM 180 where they, and it's all chipper. And then, uh, they're driving across, uh, a field to their next location. In the foreground is a bunch of uh, flowers, and they put this kind of mosaic effect over the flowers that looks like a painting. It looks like um, the Robin Williams movie, What Dreams May Come, as well. Should I see that movie? uh, It's been a long time since I've seen it. I read the book not too long ago, and it's heartbreaking. I don't know. I think the movie would probably hit me still. Uh, I remember what I was a teenager, maybe when it came out, and it got me pretty good. So next scene I have is when they're at that diner, the four of them, Richard Gere, Lenny, Patton, and his wife. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, he, Gordon had the, um, the vision with the drawing and he heard a voice telling him 99 will die. And then the phrase Denver nine. And he wrote that he scrawled it on his drawing. 
It's uh, like a, right, yeah. doing some automatic drawing. Um, is that what they call it? Automatic writing? Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. Sense thing? Yes. Yeah. Um, while they're at this diner, why in a diner in West Virginia is there a gigantic Native American buffalo hunt scene painted on the wall? I, <laughs> well, it looks cool as shit. <laughs> <laughs> If, if that answers your question, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's, it's. I mean, I guess Ohio has the. Uh, it's not far from there. They have the Serpent Mounds. Yes. In Adams County, which is only. I mean, it's not far. It's. What are Serpent Mounds? Excuse me. Um. The, so the Serpent Mounds are like they're snake shaped. Like it, you can Google them. They're like um. Bur- I think they were burial mounds for Native American tribes that were in the area. Um. And they're in Adams County, Ohio. Um. It's like a historical um, site, landmark thing now. Oh, wow. The world's most spectacular effigy mound. So, wow. <laughs> so there were like Native Americans in that area, of course. I mean, they're, I guess they were in every area of America. Yeah. Even, um, yeah. Um, so I, that could be part of it, but it is, it is a little, it doesn't match with what you would expect for sure for, for just random West Virginia. I mean, we're, it should be a mural of like uh, coal miners, right? Or uh, a chinchiot or something. Yeah, or just like the rocky top. I don't know. It just yes, it wasn't what I was imagining. Uh-huh. But yeah, we see that uh, Richard Gear goes over, turns the TV volume up, the news is on. Denver nine flight has crashed. Ninety nine people are dead. Dun dun dun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get one of those cool shots the POV shot from the TV. And then John is in full research mode at this point. uh, And we get one of these montages, which seems like it should have brought the running time down. Like you could have fit a lot in one of these montages, but it doesn't really tell you anything that they have to have a scene with uh, Laura Lenny afterwards, where he explains what he found. And then she tells him about a dream that she has where she's drowning this is my pa- favorite part of her performance. Yes. When she's describing this dream, I she's incredible. And when she says that I, I'm I'm sinking and there's Christmas presents above me and I'm sinking into the black and it feels good. Mm. And like that little moment of like like that acceptance of death and going into the void but being comforted by it. I I don't know, I it I found that very profound that moment in that line uh more like there's a couple times in this movie uh where i got midnight mass vibes uh because it's a horror story that's about something else and people deliver monologues like and, i don't uh, know was that the new flanagan sorry yes. andrews okay I, I need to get on that i love i love flanagan then i, I won't make the joke i was gonna make then because you can go in cold <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> you can make all the jokes you want about almost everything else he's done. I just haven't seen this one yet. Ouija, Origin of Evil? Yeah, I know I did see that because everyone said, you know what, this movie is way better than it has any right to be. Somehow this prequel movie to a shitty movie, Ouija, is actually pretty awesome. So yeah. I, I, did, I did watch it. I, I do need to rewatch. Doctor Sleep though, because I I want to be blown away by it mm-hmm. like everyone else was, but my first time watching it, I wasn't. 
So I would I would really like to give it another shot because you never know if I if I was in a weird mood. It might have been during quarantine, which like especially like movies that I watched last April through September, basically like who knows what mindset what mindset I was in when I was watching them, you know. Yeah, there's half the time I'm like, oh, the president has COVID, and and oh, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, Sean, I'm sure Dylan and I will sit down on a and do a watch along with you. We'll do the director's cut if you want. Yeah, I mean, I like that. If I'm going to watch that movie again, it'll definitely be the director's cut. Yeah. Uh, but that would be fun. Oh, yeah, Dylan, I forgot we're going to probably end up talking about that one, huh? Yep. Um, the next moment I have is uh, when Richard Gere sees the hole in the brick wall. Oh, well, Will Patton first describes a visit with the Mothman, doesn't he? That was just before. Yeah. So we have uh, uh, we do have Connie at the end of her dream. She hears a voice saying, "You're okay, number thirty-seven." Oh right, yeah. Will Patton, in my favorite scene of his, now tells the story of the Mothman visiting him, and tells him that he's he pulls his truck over at like an old quarry or something, and. This is where we get probably the most um, clear shot of the Mothman, I think, in the movie. I Mm -hmm. don't think there's many others where you get this view of it as it approaches his truck and it tells him that it has a name. What's the name? Idris Cold? Indrid. Indrid. Yeah, that's a bizarre name. Um, Tells him that 300 people will die and to wait for me and I will return. John is like does not believe him at all, and then Gordon pulls out a newspaper with a story about an earthquake that killed three hundred people. Like, which that's one of those things where it's like it's a magic trick, but you could have read that ahead of time. Like, it's not that impressive until later when Gordon calls John, saying that injured cold is next to him. This part, yeah, Andrew, if you want to. Come on with this part, because this is definitely the most chilling and, like, spine-tingling, oh, fuck this moment for me in this movie. Yeah, this is the part where, like, Richard Gere, or John, is talking to um, Andrew Cold over the phone, because he, uh, he, he asked, well, like, Will Patton puts him on, and uh, just the, like, he's just describing things like, you know, like, you know, like, oh, like, this is you, and, like, I think at one point he says, like, you know, you you uh you feel like you never really knew your father like that was like the the one thing like he's like okay you have my attention I mean and you know he's kind of still he's he you can see he's a little rattled by that but he's still like you know it's a he's 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 he knows how psychics work you know like he he's not it's a grift you know whatever and then um he's like okay like what, what where's my watch he's like it's in in the jacket under the bed or something or in the suitcase under the bed yeah and then he's like what am I holding in my hand. And then this was the part that, like, I remember the first time I saw it, it just, like, completely just, like, I was like, turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) Chapstick. And I was like, okay, all right. (laughs) The the way it just says, like, chapstick. (laughs) (laughs) And he pulls out the passage. The passage that he pulls out is, like, something about um, she was under the beating wings or something in the book that it reads. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And just the the modulation on this voice and the sound design on it is just unsettling. And later, I love the reasoning why that we get later, uh, that 
um, after this, what else happens on this phone call? Is this where you get uh, the Ohio River thing? Uh, Disaster on the river? I know that Connie goes to Gordon's house because she was with John. So when the call starts, she goes to Gordon's house to check things out and see if she can catch injured cold. But she gets there and Gordon, when she knocks on the door, Gordon claims that he just woke up and had been asleep for hours. He's been asleep for eight hours, but got the call from him an hour ago. Which, again, oh. those little time things in this movie send shivers down my spine every time. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, this... Yeah, sorry. That was... I'm sorry, I skipped ahead a little bit there. No, well, it, but he gets, a, he gets a series of calls after yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. We go to the sound lab. The sound engineers? What are these guys doing? They're getting paid to rub their fingers, their wet fingers on wine glasses? <laughs> like, this is the most bizarre little <laughs> lab. <laughs> but the fact that they tell him that the Mothman doesn't have a male or female voice, because it's not a human voice, it's just electrical impulse. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Oh my god, I love that. That part felt, that's I think when I made my note of this feels like an X-Files because going to visit like the local expert and everything seemed straight out of uh, an episode. Uh, yeah, well, we're going to go to another local expert when he goes to track down the the lecturer. Who is this guy? Alexander Leak. Who, yeah, I put he's an expert on cryptids. Like, I don't quite no i think he is a stand-in for john keel because leak is keel backwards so that's kind of a loose homage to, to the oh, guy who wrote the original book yeah who's what's the who's the name who's the story based on that's supposedly true john keel john keel okay and his, his middle name is alva okay but it is a keel yeah okay so it happened the actual story happened like in the sixties and the book came out in seventy five. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's kind of weird, which explains why uh in the movie John has a cell phone that never works. Like they they had to include that he has a cell phone, but it just does not work in West Virginia, apparently. Uh so Leek tells John uh about the Mothman saying that they've been around since cave painting times uh, and that they show up before disasters and that John should leave Point Pleasant. Uh, I really like this part because he has a great analogy because John asks like, is it God? And he's like, no, it's like, do you see that window washer up there? He can just see further. He can see Mm -hmm. if there's a car accident, he can just see further than we can. But that by no means means that he's a creator or anything. Right. And so I like that, that the Mothman is just, it's some kind of being that's just slightly more observant than we are as humans. Mm -hmm. And he compares it uh, when John says, why haven't they tried to, to step into any of these things and explain themselves to us? And uh, Leek says, "Uh, have you ever tried to explain yourself to a cockroach? 
this reminded me both of Prince of Darkness and of Pi. The mm-hmm. idea of messages being delivered to people, but they either don't have the technology to understand it, or like in Pi, just it, it, it's it's consuming the person. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought between these three movies, Pi especially, Pi and this, of like a guy who becomes obsessive with a message he's received, I think they would go really nicely together. Well, I guarantee, yeah. I guarantee you Pi was an influence given the time frame in which that came out and then this followed because that was when Aronofsky finally got, like, took off right around this. Yeah. I think, I mean, Requiem probably came out, like, right around the same time as this, right? Mm-hmm. Requiem was 2000 and this was 2002, January 2002, though. Very close. Okay. How do you know Requiem was January 2002? Mothman is January 2002. Okay. okay. Requiem is 2000 at some point. It's limited release, so who fuck? I, I just thought you had, like, the specific release month for Requiem. I'm like, wow, Andrew, you really know your stuff. Qantas <laughs> never crashed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, John is torpedoing his job at the newspaper uh, by his obsession here, which... I wish we got a better sense of the time that has passed that would really help sell that because his coworker that he's talking to is like, you need to talk to the editor. Like he just keeps telling him this, like they're worried. Just tell them that you're sick or something. And it really, I don't know. I think that aspect of it doesn't play. I think. And you're until the, towards the end, he doesn't seem frantic or like upset enough to really sell a lot of this. He's doing good acting. He's a good actor, but he's just not like portraying the kind of obsessiveness uh, that the character's actions are showing. I, I, I think that's what I'm saying. Like, I just wanted a little bit more, a little mm-hmm. bit bigger out of Richard Gere. Go ahead, Andrew. Um, no, I, I, there could be, there could have been a tension there between what the material called for and what the director wanted to emphasize where he's trying to emphasize, like, he may have been pushing it to be pushing him to be more reserved and grieving and like, you know, insular, but the material kind of calls for more of an investigative propulsive energy to it. Um, but so that, and that's one of the interesting things here is like, you can see what, what, in, what interested the director most is what works the best. And then there's elements like this that are, you know, kind of fall by the wayside and they don't torpedo the movie by any means, but it's just, it is kind of an awkward fit when mm-hmm. it all comes together. Yeah, you guys saying X Files? Gear really does seem to be cha- uh, channeling like that Dukovny energy yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, so, have we gotten to Will Patton's? Yeah, that's next. The quote, okay, because right after uh, John is told that he should avoid Point Pleasant, he drives straight back to Point Pleasant. <laughs> 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 He doesn't even consider it like he's going back. Uh, and this is where we find out that there's been 15 more sightings in the time John was gone. And Gordon has lost his job and his wife has left him like shit that is going happened. downhill quick. That yes, for his marriage to dissolve <laughs> that quickly. Yeah, um, <laughs> he must have been saying some truly crazy shit for his wife to bail. Yes. Uh, and that, this is when John finds Gordon waiting on the bridge for Indrid. Uh, I any time someone's standing on a bridge like this is concerning. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought 
I thought Will Patton was jumping like at any moment in this conversation that they have. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't. And early the next day, John receives a call from Gordon, who's being super cryptic. Uh, and John rushes to his house because he's worried about him. And he finds the house empty. Uh, the yard is empty. He starts searching the woods nearby. And he finds Gordon's body against a tree. And you know what you got to do when you find a body. We you gotta, have to close the eyelids. You got to close them eyes. <laughs> they see too much. <laughs> is this is this just a movie thing, or were people closing eyelids like well before movies happened? And this is like just a human thing that's carried over for thousands of years. Because this seems like such a Hollywood idea of like you put your. And it's always just like a palm. You somehow yeah. just run your whole palm over somebody's face. And their eyes magically both close. I think it, I imagine it probably comes from paying the ferryman. Yeah. That superstition mm. of putting coins yep. on the eyes. The coin, I imagine yeah. that's part of it, but also it's really fucking freaky if there's a dead body with open eyes. <laughs> if I was someone, yeah, I feel like that would freak me out. I think I would be more upset if I did try to close the eyes and they wouldn't close. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys seen The Hitcher, Rick Howard? Mm-hmm, yeah. When he they're sitting at the diner and he puts the coins on C. Thomas Howell's eyes as they're just sitting there. It's fucking scary. I love that movie so much. Rucker Howard. Oh, I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to uh, mention when it, this scene, everything that happens here with Will Patton's character and, and you know, calling, you know, Richard Gere, leaving the message and then Richard Gere goes to find him is very, like, it really is similar to what happens in, um, uh, first reformed. I don't oh know shit! That. Yeah. What's what's first reformed with uh, Ethan Hawke? Um, it's oh like, my god! Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it, it's about uh, Ethan Hawke plays a priest, and there's a, a parishioner who uh, has just needs to talk wants to talk to his wife wants him to talk to the priest uh, because uh, they're having a baby, and he doesn't want to have the baby because the world's going to end because of climate change. You know, we're destroyed. We've destroyed the planet. We don't want to bring a child into this world. He's only going to know suffering, suffering and death. Um, and then he sure. We try, so it's like an existential crisis the whole way through. And then he literally he calls. I think um, I think he calls Ethan Hawke and leaves a message or something. And Ethan Hawke rushes over to meet, or they plan to meet up in the. They had planned to meet at the park, and he shows up, and he's, you know, uh, killed himself. And so it's eerily similar. And I think not that I think Paul Schrader ripped it off. I mean, I'm sure he saw Mothman prophecies or whatever, but. Um, it's, it's the purpose it serves there highlights the purpose it serves here. I think in a really interesting way, they complement they complement each other very well. It, mm. it furthers his, uh, obsession and investigation down this existential path, uh, rather than turning him off of it. Yeah. Because Connie tells him that Gordon has been dead for eight hours. He died from exposure. And John tells her that he called, Gordon had called him just an hour ago. Love it. Love it. <laughs> again, again, it's like, it's such an easy gimmick. And yeah. it's just, it's just a line of dialogue. You don't even have to 
shoot anything specifically for it. Yep. But it completely works on me. Literally, the amount of times we've talked about it coming up as a gimmick in this, you would think it like if I was listening to this before I saw the movie, I'd be like, oh, they probably run it into the ground. It's exhausting. No, you're right. It works every yeah. time. <laughs> like, it's so good. <laughs> well, it's a little different. Like, sometimes it's a geographical distance. Sometimes it's a time thing. Sometimes someone's dead when they were like, it's just. It's a little bit tweaked each time, so it doesn't quite get stale. And then more weird shit starts happening in the town, uh, which culminates with uh, someone meeting John's wife's description in the police station looking for him. And I feel like these two events, like, really kick him into a different frenzied kind of gear which is gear uh which is (laughs) what we get for the rest of the movie this is where he finally seems to pick up and the editing really picks up too uh especially after connie describes this woman and he pulls out the picture of his wife and connie's like well it might not have been her you know things are different her hair was different but who else would be even be looking for him like what it you know it also uh, that reminds me of something that I th- we definitely skipped over earlier. That um, when um, Will Patton says he saw, like he draws the, the Mothman as well. Uh, Richard Gere becomes convinced he has the same rare disease that yes. his wife did, and convinces him that he has it too. Like he's like, no, it's I definitely have it. Like he's even Will Patton's like, I, I I have it, and that's that's another element of like you know, and that you know leading into this where it's like someone looking like your wife came here, like not being able to get away from that moment, like, or trying to thinking like he has to save him because he has the same thing, like, or, or that that's why he's there. Like trying to find meaning or a pattern that makes sense in all of it is like, that was really, that really worked for me. Like, I was like, Oh, okay. I, I, I get that like really well. Yeah. I think the idea that his wife is somehow speaking to him from, beyond at this point or she is involved with it um it's like it's heartwarming and chilling at the same time like it's you could see how it would set you to be obsessive on this quest but also you would want to be like you would want to hold on to those last strands of that person and if if they are reaching out to you it's like um the the grandmother and poltergeist too or something where it's you want that any bit of connection you can have with them to still live on the grandmother and poltergeist that's a pull right there buddy the, the ending to poltergeist too just thinking back to the ending of angel grandma uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. i was thinking of the rose garden scene but yeah. i know but i just had to think of it <laughs> all right move. <laughs> oh moving on um is it around this point that uh richard gear finds out that the governor's coming to pleasant point pleasant to check out the petrochemical plant petrochemical plant mm-hmm. yeah he uh john becomes crazed gets more phone calls uh he drives clear to chicago to visit leak again this was one of those things where i'm like could you guys not have combined these two scenes with this professor into one Chicago visit? Like, yeah, this runtime is long. And just the idea that like 
in this last portion, all of the traveling he does is crazy. He had to yeah, drive clear his, across Indiana, like most his, of Ohio and Indiana, to get to Chicago. Yeah, but his car goes 267 <laughs> miles per hour. So Good point. <laughs> doesn't take that long at all. Uh, Richard Gere gets awfully physical with Laura Linney as he's like freaking out in the report of the tragedy on the Ohio River. And he's like pinning her against the wall and stuff and just uncomfortable. Mm hmm. Uh. Yeah, he tries to convince the the politician not to go. Everyone ignores him and shoots him down. And lo and behold, nothing happens. He goes to a bar and there's this one poor actor. She's she's hidden at the bar and this actor walks up to him and says, excuse me, Mr. Klein, I have a message for you. And it literally shows from her torso up to her lips and then cuts her off at the nose and eyes. So she's like, Oh, I got a line with Richard gear. I hand him this. Like I'm in this movie. Trust me. I am in this thing. And her whole family goes to the theater and it's, excuse me, Mr. Klein, there's a message for you. And it's just her fucking lips. God damn it. <laughs> Mark Pellington. <laughs> I, was, I was, I was, I like to think, I was like, maybe that actor was just a real pain in the ass on set. So he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shoot this real tight. <laughs> so he gets this message that his wife is going to call at noon, I guess on Christmas Eve. She's going to call his house in Georgetown. So go back to Georgetown. But he went to another city first when the thing was going to happen at the, at the plant. Uh, which it seems like they were trying to hew it too close to maybe what actually happened in the book. Uh, and what I've read of the book, um, sorry to, um, yeah. I read like the first like few chapters and it's all about like conspiracies about these chemical plants. Like they're putting something out there in the, um, and they're like polluting and stuff like that, which of course, if you guys have seen the movie dark waters is obviously, I mean, or read, up on the news, I guess. I don't know. I read everything through movies. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it is a thing that people were concerned about at the time with like runoff from these plants and stuff. And it was, uh, it was, it was definitely like tied in a lot to um, uh, people thought there might be experiments or something that were causing this Mothman creature to appear or like created this thing. Um, and I don't know that the movie quite makes that connection as clearly as the, I mean, to be fair, the book rambles a lot about it too. <laughs> But um, they don't make it as clearly as they probably could have. Well, that uh, the plant stuff actually made me think a little bit of uh, we watched Harlan County, USA a few weeks ago. Uh, and the the fact that the politician and there's the news report about them going through the plant and giving it the stamp of approval just made me think of the coal plants, uh, the coal mines in that movie. Um, that got what was it like a dozen uh extensions on their safety check mm -hmm. yeah something like that I, it's before the collapse happened and yeah a lot of people were killed yeah yeah it made, no, made, I, I laughed when it's like the government came by and gave his seal of approval and said what a great job it's like oh the government is a chemical engineer who understands how like structural engineering and how this facility is operated and everything yeah. oh that's good that the government gives it a thumbs up the governor um, so Laura Linney, Richard Gere is awfully lonely. It's right around Christmas time. Laura Linney says, stop 
wallowing. He says, I miss my wife. I need to be here. She says, well, you can miss her, but you need to be over here. You can still miss her, but be with people who care about you. Yeah. Which I thought was really sweet of her and a very nice gesture. He hangs up and then the phone call starts again. And this is where he rips the phone out of the wall, right? Yeah. That's uh, Connie asks him to come back to Point Pleasant. And he's in this big ho- The house was too big for two people, and he's living in it all by himself. It's really sad, because you see... Um, I wish the stuff with them as a couple at the beginning played a little bit better, because they repeat some of the angles when John goes back to his house. Kind of this shot of looking down into the foyer, and it, him standing there alone rings... Like, you see the echo of where he was... And he was supposed to have this happy life with his wife. And now he's got her ghost on the telephone. So you're saying you want this movie to be longer? Yeah. Like, do do more. Do more, <laughs> movie. Come on. Turn it into a series. <laughs> yeah. This would be great if it was stretched out to six hours and put on Netflix. <laughs> um. So the he rips the phone out of the wall. And then it starts to ring again, and he's faced with the quandary, uh, as Laura Lenny put it, like, do you want your memories or this false version of her? Because it's not, it's not really her. It's whatever this entity is pretending to be. I mean, it's pretended to be John. It's pretended to be Gordon. It's pretending to be his wife at this point. Uh, it's not really going to be her. Does he want that as his last memory of her? And... He leaves. He leaves all of his his luggage there, too. Like, it's still sitting by the door. He just goes. He gets his jacket and, and nopes the fuck out of there. Um, yeah, this is as we travel back. It, this part, with this made me laugh because I'm like, all right, this movie has, this must be a big, big budget movie. Because we start to get some CGI shots in this now. Mm-hmm. And that kind of surprised me so there's a huge traffic jam as he's trying to get in town on the bridge and we get the cgi shot where it goes from the chemical plant and almost like in seven with that cgi it does like this like super hyper cgi zoom where it goes from the chemical plant back and we zoom back through the bridge and um it starts to dawn on richard gear that uh oh it wasn't the chemical plant it was the bridge itself you know what's also on the river the bridge <laughs> Uh, he hears a sound that rem- reminds him of uh, the the sound on the phone calls that they couldn't actually distinguish, and it's the creaking of the bridge. This oh, I I I I picked up on him hearing something. Yeah, but I did not make that connection. Yeah, I think it's because they said that there was another sound that runs through the background of it, and I think that's what it is. Uh, I like that. Yeah. And so once he recognizes that, he rushes onto the bridge to start to warn people. And there's all these like uh, macro shots of bolts and things on the bridge starting to to shake and come loose. This turns into a Final Destination movie for a few minutes here. (laughs) Especially when he sees TJ, the kid who had eyeball stigmata. Um, He tells TJ, get off the bridge, it's going to collapse. And right as he does so, a wire comes loose. And in straight up Final Destination fashion, like whips down through TJ's car, presumably takes his head out and then lifts the car off the ground for a second. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that was cool. 
I like to think uh, that it hit him right in in his bloody eye. So yes, I do too. I got to finish the job. Yes. Um, do you th- do you guys think they use some miniatures for this? How it looks really really good. Yeah, it's, I read somewhere that they did, and I'll bet it's covered on that uh, that the extra feature I didn't watch. Um, but um, yeah, a lot of that is is miniature work, and then I'm assuming because uh, all the like you said, there is CGI, but it's pretty minimal, especially considering, you know, um, like what was happening. Like movies were just throwing, like uh, slathering, you know, <laughs> um, they were just slathering movies in it at the time, even though it wasn't up to snuff. Uh, but yeah, the uh, a lot of miniature work is is what I read. It looks great. Yeah, um, like, and I'm glad they did miniatures because. Oh, sorry, I'm glad they did miniatures because had they gone CGI. I'm just imagining, like you said, Andrew, along came a spider, but with even more cars and more bridge, and it's not going to be good. It's, uh, I think it's similar to the ferry tipping over in uh, War of the Worlds, where the way they use miniatures for that. I'm, I'm imagining <laughs> they did something similar with all the cars going into the water and stuff, and just matched it up as best they could. The Tom Cruise one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I don't remember the ferry scene. Yeah, it's like uh, uh-huh. everybody's trying to get on the boat, and then. Um, like the uh, tripod comes up from out of the water beside the boat. Mm. That's, <laughs> that's cool. And they did a miniature for that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Spielberg seems like a guy that like, even when he made that movie, he would still opt to do things the old fashioned way when he could. Well, the mix is always better uh, if you can get it right. Yeah. And people, you know, there's a huge rallying cry against CGI, but I think like you said, if you get that blend right, where, like Josh and I watched Annihilation, and I thought that movie did a great job of using a combo of practical on the set combined with CGI in post to give the actors something to react to, or to have the re- actors have something physical to interact with or fight with, and then in post you then change things around, but the physics feels real. Whereas I, I think that in CGI, that's one thing is like just motion and movement physics and impact and a lot of these things they still quite haven't figured out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, as the bridge is collapsing, Laura Lenny's trying to get people out. She goes back into her car to get on the radio um, and then one gigantic piece of the bridge falls and uh, you know how there's like the Wilhelm scream? Well, this movie uses one of my over my favorite oversampled screams. It's the really long one where it's like it's I it's in use so many times. I remember being a kid playing um Dark Forces, the Star Wars game on like Mac. And that that scream, that death was like oh, yes. anytime you'd fall off a ledge, that was the scream that was used. And so that scream has just followed me like from childhood on. I spot it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that 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 moment definitely took me out of it because I was like, "Why are they doing this? Why'd they throw this in there?" <laughs> it doesn't. It also like the scream. I noticed like cut. It's like a hard cut on the end of it. It doesn't have like a nice like uh, fade down. Yeah, it's just one of those things where I. Sp- like once you learn about the Wilhelm scream, it just becomes annoying when editors use it. It's like you guys aren't clever. Stop doing this, please. <laughs> um, so, guys, do you know about car safety? If you do end up in a lake or river, and your car is getting submerged, uh, 
that you should wait until it, the pressure equalizes inside yeah. the car and out and then roll the window down. Or, yeah, so if you can't open the door immediately, don't waste your energy because as you still have a bunch of air in the car, you're not going to be able to push that door open and then you're just exerting. So you got to, as fucked up as it is, you got to just sit if you don't have a way to break the window or something and just let it fill up. And then once that pressure equalizes, then you'll be able to just easily pop your door open. Uh, but I recommend, I have a... Uh, it's in. It goes to my cigarette adapter, and it's like a USB thing, but it also has a seatbelt cutter and window breaker on it, and so that's just always there in the cigarette lighter. Oh, it's we've got ones that just they're in the door panel. Uh, you know, it's also where I set my wallet and now my mask when I'm driving. Uh, the little pocket in the door, uh, the seatbelt cutter thing, and a little window hammer. Yep. Yeah, that's smart. So, I mean, I don't, it's not like I'm driving by bodies of water that frequently, but still, you just, you never know, man. What about when your, when your plane goes down in Percy Priest Lake? Oh, and what? Oh. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very specific call out to, uh, if you watch the documentary The Way Down on HBO, uh, it opens with footage of a plane crash that happened here locally where a cult leader and a B-movie actor wound up in a lake uh, when their small small plane went down. Well, and her, he was her husband, right? Her yes. Partner? Yeah. And, um, yeah, that, uh, I, I thought, I assume when it hit the lake, it, like, did a, it did, it did like, the, um, like, the Pentagon plane and just evaporated or whatever. <laughs> no, I think it was, like, Hatchet, where he's still all together, and then uh, you have to go down. You have to swim down there and get your supplies later. Rest in peace, Gary Paulson. Oh, yeah. He just died in the past week or so. Uh, so, in an act of badass bravery, uh, Richard Gere jumps off the bridge and swims down to Laura Linney's sinking car where she's passed out, and he's able to get her door open and swim her to safety. Um... Uh, they're back now. They're hanging out. Uh, where do I get some of those recovery blankets that <laughs> firefighters and ambulances have? Those look so cozy and comfy. Just get a couple <laughs> recovery blankets and uh -huh. some hot cocoa and have a little fall night. I've got... Yeah, I need more blankets and less blankets. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, a wool blanket that reminds me of those. Uh, and my, my cat's sleeping on it right now, so... That's, but that's one of my nap blankets. When I'm on the leather couch, I get the wool blanket with it. It's a whole, it's a whole vibe. Leather couch with a wool blanket yeah. sounds a miserable way to nap. I'm sorry, Josh. <laughs> this is the couch that I slept on for months. It was my, it was my primary. Is that a soft thing. wool blanket or is it a scratchy wool blanket? It's become softer, but it's it's a it's a fairly high end one, but it's uh, it's kind of scratchy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The tracking uh, Richard Gere's belief level through this last part is a little bit weird to me. When, because he disbelieves, he goes back to his uh, uh, hotel and throws all of his research away at one point. Uh, but then he starts on his 
thing about the chemical plant and tries to convince everyone that something's going to happen. So it's like he's his pendulum sways back and forth real, really quickly and seemingly without much pushing it. Uh, did that bother you guys at all? Um, I, for me, I don't know that I clocked it as much because I knew I may have it may have like if I was watching this for the first time, but because I remembered the ending so well because it's so specific and it it's got it's like a kind of a reference to the uh, Twilight Zone episode too a little bit. Yeah, I remembered that really well, so I was like, I know where it's going, so I wasn't necessarily charting the progression as closely as I would have if I was just you know. In uh, coming to it fresh, okay, I could see where that would be frustrating or like confusing. One way it works for me is that um, Laura Linney is trying to heal him essentially, and I feel like this movie, it, they nothing romantic ever happens. They don't even exchange romantic words. But I feel like in the long run, that's kind of when he's going to visit her for Christmas that feels like he wants to maybe move on or for her, especially of like, maybe there is a future here with this lady or maybe she is right. And I need to move on from my wife. So I think that's why he might've been willing to let go of his belief, especially after it wasn't at the petrochemical, cl- uh, God damn it. <laughs> petrochemical plant. Uh, so I think maybe he might've been eager to let go of it. That may, that's like the only thing I could think of. Okay. I think that makes sense. Because, uh, I mean, it's, she's, she reiterates so many times, and I think he starts to realize after two years, like, oh, this probably isn't healthy that I'm uh, still fixated on this and still talking to some demon every night on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this isn't the right path for me. Uh, so that... That about wraps up this movie. Well, we we do find out that 36 people died on the bridge. Uh, They recovered those bodies really quickly. Uh, And that Laura Lenny would have been number 37, just like in her dream. Uh, And then a card pops up on screen and tells us that although there are Mothman seen all over the world, there have been no more sightings in Point Pleasant. Except for the statue that they have there. That. That tag seemed dumb to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just like, nobody's ever seen a Mothman again. Like, really? I'm pretty sure there's a couple town quacks that are still out there trying to, like, keep the mythos alive by claiming that they've seen it and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I like the intention Uh, behind it. But yeah, I, I agree. It's a little goofy. So, Andrew, I see here in your, uh, you've already got five likes on your review of this movie? People, people love me. Also, I don't, <laughs> I don't know who you're looking at. It could be anybody. Andrew is very popular on Letterboxd, folks. Um, <laughs> but you call out that it's, uh, exists on the same continuum of films as Knowing and The Empty Man. Now, those films have similarities, but they're not the same in terms of quality, are they? You're not putting these all on, like, one level, are you? Um, I think that, um, I mean, of the three, I'd probably say The Empty Man is my favorite. I don't know if it's 
the best because I think it has some issues in the end game as well, and I don't want to spoil okay. anything if if everyone hasn't seen it. Um, but I love that it has that like sorcerer esque opening that's almost completely unrelated to every. I mean, it's just its own like mini movie. Yes, I think knowing is really good. I'm kind of on the Roger Ebert camp with it, um, where he gave it four stars. I think somewhat infamously. And he's always been a big Alex Proyas guy because he loves uh, Dark City and did the commentary on the DVD and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I think Knowing is really interesting and is exploring similar things. I think it, it reaches a, a a very baffling and stupid, you know, kind of stupid conclusion by the time it gets to the end. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I won't spoil it. But um, Knowing Knowing's final twist annoyed the shit out of me (laughs) 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 but but all three movies are kind of exploring is they're they're all like um involved in exploring a kind of like um trying to find meaning in in things that don't make sense trying to uh and ultimately ascribing it to something that's supernatural um whether mildly um like just something we don't understand like what the way the mothman presented here or you know a, a a new kind of uh uh, uh sociological like um, anthropological you know evolution of a certain kind of thing that is happening at the end of the Empty Man, uh, or you know the goofy you know ending of of Knowing, which I forget how they get there exactly, but I I know that the there they get to is disappointing, um, but it's all you know they're all. People driven by grief or loss or, you know, uh, a pursuit of understanding, you know, uh, trying to find their way through it. And, you know, with these supernatural things kind of either seeming as like the only, you know, uh, solution or, you know, or or a puzzle not worth solving uh, or a puzzle whose solving will ultimately lead to one's own demise in some scenario mm-hmm. or ascendance, you know, depending um, I, I think they're all, and there's a lot, I think there are, those are just the first that, ones that came to mind, but they're all, I think, in the same kind of, like, realm, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, hearing your explanation ties them together better uh, for me. Like, also, the, uh, what is it, the number 23 is what this made me think of. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Okay. <laughs> That's uh, the the ahead, whole Josh. belief in uh like an urban legend um taking over your life and either destroying or nearly destroying it. Uh that aspect of it is what what spoke to me. Uh and ultimately here though I think the the push pull is not so much about faith or belief but the what do you do with that and where do you put your memories and where do you put your value in your life? Uh, the, the aspect of moving on, this one centers that part of the narrative a lot more heavily, I think than the other ones do. So uh, I have quite, what do you guys think of this just as a double feature? Because when Candyman was proposed, I was, I was thinking about like mythology and a, a, a movie about, mythos and or like myth bringing things to life mm-hmm. and honestly i think i missed the mark a little bit because i that's not quite what mothman prophecies is or maybe it is i don't know what how do you guys think these two went together i think that um it reminds me of um the, the mothman prophecies struck me as like kind of an or it, it 
the way an origin story, you know, an origin story for the nature, the reason we have religion in the first place, or something like that. Something bad happens, we tell ourselves a story uh, that makes it make sense, you know, and that's kind of what I got from that. And I think Candyman, um, the the that aspect of it is, I think, more foregrounded in the newer one, but it exists in the original, where it is a story that's told to make certain uh, tragic aspects of you know these of people's lives, um, you know, make make a sort certain amount of sense like why are people dying there's you know there's they're dying because this is happening and you know why um th- because this happened in the past and he's back for revenge and that's what he does you know as opposed to you know the i think the way candyman does it it's more of a broad it's more of a uh, broad metaphor that you have to read into to get that out of it but whereas mothman prophecies it's on the surface um and it ultimately um, and this is my the the concluding point of it it reminded me of what ryan johnson said when someone asked him about the prequel trilogy he said uh where he described it as like a a a story arc about how fear of loss can turn people into fascists and i was like yeah you know it's the same kind of thing it's like the way that the fear and and grief and all these things um and tragedy are the things that kind of motivate they they can motivate people to justify things, you know, justify certain behaviors, um, like uh, you know that that either, you know, Richard Gere I think ultimately finds the way through his sort of paralyzing grieving process um, as a result of all this, as a result of uh, uh, he learns to let go and learns to, you know a little bit and learns to kind of um, that thing. He can't control everything. He can't save everybody. Bad things are going to happen, but it's okay. And it's okay if there's no real reason for it. You know, it's kind of, there's something out there, you know, overseeing it. And, you know, that's just the way it is. I feel like he's kind of has more of a, ends in more of a peaceful place. Whereas I think the, I think in Candyman, that figure is, uh, uh, Tony Todd's character, uh, is Daniel Robitaille, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and I think he's the one who was, you know, and it's, he's obviously not the main character, but um, the fact that, you know, what happened to him was obviously awful, and the story of it that happened, you know, uh, echoes through the community over the years, and resurfaces as this cautionary tale, and also this active horror um, that's been being perpetuated. Um, and so I think, in that sense, it is it is a good pairing, you know. Uh, and also, uh, the bees and moths. You know, we're doing we're doing good here. I didn't even make that. <laughs> uh, but thank you, because that, yeah, the the idea of like Mothman and Candyman, I hadn't even put those two together as like both being like the similar like a similar kind of character, because Mothman is barely in the movie, so I feel like it's more of an idea than it is an actual entity. But I I love what you said about it being an origin story, and now in this community. This is almost like how Candyman was created in Cabrini Green back in the day. Now Mothman has been created with this bridge collapse and everything. Uh, Thank you. That was really, really insightful. Josh, what do you have? I think early on, uh, Helen specifically calls out in Candyman, Helen calls out that this is a story these people are telling each other to make sense of their world. And it's like, one is uh, more broadly applied, and it's weird because I feel like the story of Candyman is a lot more specific, but that m- it makes it 
fit for a whole society, whereas Mothman is more specifically about Richard Gere's journey. Uh, and it's about him learning to accept what he, he has been dealt in the world. Uh, and like you said, Andrew, like not trying to control everything. And Candyman is about the whole, the, the difference between uh, the classes and how you have to find something to not put your faith in, but something to believe as far as why your circumstances are the way they are. And I think especially the, the lower classes in America are told like, you know, there's an outside influence because if you work real hard, you'll be able to make your way through this world and climb up the ladder. And that's just not the way that society is actually set up. That's the narrative that we tell about America, but it's not how it works. And that these people have developed all these coping mechanisms, which is what the story of Candyman is, of why the horribleness is visited upon them. And to the upper classes, the the academics, it's viewed as something to mock, as a joke. Uh, To the people who are living through it day to day, it's part of their structural belief system. And you don't get exactly that kind of commentary in Mothman. It's much more individualized to specifically what is John and uh, what Gordon went through. I think you can read a lot into that character uh, and Will Patton's portrayal of him, of his own grief and uh, maybe dissatisfaction at his place in life uh, and what, why injured cold would have appeared to him specifically and what led to his ultimate death and downfall. So I think the two very complementary, but approach the same coin from, from opposite sides. You guys are really smart. <laughs> <laughs> no, but genuinely like that, that was one of the better takedowns of Candyman or however you want to put that explanations of Candyman that I've heard in a while. And that was really beautiful. What you said. Well, we also didn't talk about how, dripping with eroticism Candyman is <laughs> like for a movie that has what there's maybe four boobs in the movie <laughs> there's like nothing sexy in the movie but it feels well, well, very sensuous you say that about a movie that contains Virginia Madsen there's nothing sexy about it well <laughs> there's nothing sexual okay I've been I've been not creepy this entire time <laughs> can I just say I think Virginia Madsen is a very attractive human being. Yes. Yeah. And that's how creepy I'm going to get. <laughs> as as the kids say, she can get it. She can get it. But so can <laughs> Tony Todd. Everyone in that movie can get it. Except for Xander Berkeley. Ugh. Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> but, uh, but, but what do you guys rate before we get skipped yes. here? Uh, what do you guys rate the Mothman prophecies? Um, I gave it four stars, and I, I think I'll probably stay. I thought it would. I honestly. In my memory, I had I had gone back and rated it when I first got on the app, and I was like, I'll just give it four stars. And then I was like, well, it might go up because I really like this movie, and I don't think it would be a five-star movie, but I was like, I feel like it's going to hold up pretty well. And it did, but it's, yeah, it's I, I think it's really solid. It's like a, you know, not quite, um, I definitely prefer Candyman of the two as, as a movie, but I think they're, they're, uh, they're not that far off, though. I'm right there with you. I think if you 
knocked 10 to 15 minutes off of Mothman and gave Richard Gere 10 to 15% more energy, it would be a four and a half or maybe even a five. Um, but for me, it sits right there on a four. It, it's, it's really, really solid. It has one or two execution problems, but it's a movie that I'll definitely rewatch. And it just, it has a vibe and it has a tone. And again, that goes back to the music in that, that often ambient score or just, you know, it's, it's a movie that I could definitely see being a dread movie, which is like movies that fill me with dread of just like this impending sense of doom that like something down the road terrible is going to happen are often like, I love that feeling in movies. It's like, if a director can give me that feeling, then I know he's tapped into me. And like, and like we're, on, we're on the same page here and we're ready to go. This one's close, but it doesn't quite get me there like a Session 9 does or something like that. But really good, especially for the time frame. Um, yeah. Josh, what do you got? Uh, I gave it three and a half. I, I think the, the length... And some of the the montages go on, uh, and some of the redundancy with like visiting leak twice, uh, for seemingly no thematic purpose. Uh, just like that's when it's convenient to dump that exposition. But it seemed like he could have delivered all of that earlier, and it wouldn't have changed the journey that much. Uh, uh, or he could have visited him later and done everything at that point in time. I think both of those are, are valid choices. Um, but the fact that you have to travel across the states two times for that to happen, <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of travel, especially as you guys play like this last act. It's like this guy is driving across the entire eastern seaboard daily. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, also I would have preferred more Will Patton because yeah, and he really elevated this movie for me. I mean, he and Lenny did both of them. He and Laura Lenny. Yeah, when uh, when I pulled up the the screen for it, the background uh, screen is the the bathroom scene right at the beginning, um, and it's got Laura Lenny and Will Patton. As soon as I pulled that up, I texted Andrew. I was like, "Oh, holy shit! Will Patton's in this movie!" I totally forgot. <laughs> forgot. I was <laughs> so excited. Hey, this is Sean with the producer's note. Skip ahead one minute. We're going to talk some Halloween kill spoilers. Skip ahead one minute, starting in three, two, one. Let's go. I haven't been, yes, as excited uh, to see Will Patton in something. Uh, I mean, I knew he was in it, but since um, uh, when he, when they, um, I guess, minor spoilers, but they bring him back at the beginning of Halloween Kills. Because uh, I remember Halloween 2018, I was like, don't do this to him. <laughs> and then they bring him back. I had a similar jubilance in the theater. I'm like, yes! Yes, they did it to him, but they didn't. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but in uh, Halloween Kills is stacked with these kind of actors, though, because um, what's his name? Is it Richard Longstreet? Robert Longstreet? That he's becoming one of my new that dudes. Because which which guy is he? Um, he plays Lonnie Elam. Uh, oh yeah 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 he was he was of like the townsfolk uh i think lonnie was probably my favorite performance yeah he's in midnight mass uh and is just fantastic and heartbreaking that all right on well um 
Andrew, what would you like to plug here? I, you guys, I know you've talked about working with Tony Todd a few times, but uh, you haven't dropped the movie title. It's called The Reenactment. I was able to catch a screening of it through the Atlanta Underground Film Festival or something, and I really enjoyed it, man. It had those Unsolved Mysteries vibes that freaked me out as a kid, and then combined with just a lot of fun horror kills and stuff. And there's a great American movie moment that I especially appreciated that Josh and I talked about uh, that I, when I finally saw that on screen, I just laughed out loud. Cause like, Oh, there it is. There's the moment. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. No, I'm, gl I'm glad you got a chance to see it. Yeah. Hopefully um, it will be, uh, it will be out before the end of the year. I don't have firm details yet, so I don't want to like jinx anything or, uh, but yeah, it's uh We've been fortunate to get distribution when we've been fortunate that most people who've seen it so far, um, granted, a lot of them are acquaintances, <laughs> but they do seem to enjoy it. And um, I, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be out pretty soon. Um, and uh, I guess the only other th I'm working on a movie right now um, as a second AD that's also horror. Uh, it's called The Other People. Um, and I don't know when it will be out, but I expect it's going to have a more successful festival run than we did because these, uh, the, the director and, uh, pr uh, producers, they've already had a run with a short that did really well called daddy's little girl. Um, and so, uh, that's the battle with festivals. Uh, that's why you, that's why you make short films. I, I learned it the hard way. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta get to know people first, but yeah, it's, um, uh, I'm excited about working on this as well. It's it's everything we've done. We shot for a week. It's going to be really cool. Um, I'm just second AD, which is mostly just keeping the talent uh, happy and letting them know what time they need to be there. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a fun job. Somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, keeping actors in line sounds like a hard job if you were to ask me. Uh, we've got a well, I haven't met everybody yet, but, you know, we have a great group right now so um and a couple people traveled in from la i think and they've been they're just it's fun to get to recommend things for people to do in nashville which is you know there's like no end to things you can do in nashville that are fun if you haven't been here before so uh, could you guys please talk for a minute just about working with tony todd because that's one thing i didn't quite get just your personal experiences with him um josh why don't you go and i'll formulate my thoughts um, Tony was incredibly fun to work with. Uh, the, I mean, you can tell that he is a veteran because of the fact that he can turn it on and off, like in a moment, like literally be standing there chatting with you. And then we call places and he's, he's in it. Like he doesn't need a second. We never had to wait on him, even if he was goofing around right beforehand. Like he's got that ability to you know be in character and the character we asked him to portray is very um i don't know it has a very distinctive way of speaking and of portraying himself that is not tony and the what fact was that, the guy's name on unsolved mysteries robert robert stack S yeah yes. he's kind of doing a robert stack right yes and all of his uh the mouthfuls of ridiculous dialogue that andrew and eli gave him to come up with were I loved it. Uh, even his, his voiceover for um, the beginning of the fake show where he talks about, uh, what is it? Fungal networks, uh, fungus networks. 
<laughs> being the, the future of the stock market. It's and the fact that he can say these stupid things makes me I wish that he got more of those roles uh, in I mean he, he did do in X-Files, but that kind of stuff where he just gets to say ridiculous things and make you believe them. The Star Trek Star Wars isms where it's just like no, I totally will go with that. It's fine. And um yeah, I mean I'll just add to that. I mean he's very well versed, very, you know, um not ha- not having a ton of con- like I had a couple conversations with him beforehand. Um just very brief uh to kind of just touch base and introduce ourselves. Um he I, you know, I picked him up at the airport the night before we were shooting with him. We shot with him all day. We went to the rap party that night and then he we flew him back the next day. And he was, you know, consummate professional, really great to work with, um, uh, uh, you know, taught me a lot just about um, directing actors and like working, working with a group like we had basically this was the last day of our shoot. And we had kind of gotten a, a, a dynamic in place, you know, uh, where we kind of knew every how everybody was at, you know, what they what they needed, what they how they were going to play off each other, you know, who who was ready, you know, who took a little you know, longer sometimes. You know, all of it and, you know, never in a bad way, just like understanding how people work and getting them into the um, right frame of mind to give their best together um, is the hard. I mean, that's the tricky part of it all. And then having Tony come in and just understanding, like, you know, learning how to fold him in when he isn't in that. Like we had had time to kind of get to know each other and he's coming in new and just allowing it to kind of like play itself out and, and, and figure things out, even though we're on a time crunch and we're trying to fit all this extra stuff in. Um, like we literally were, I think, uh, uh, my friend Patrick wrote the fungus networks line. I still don't know what it means. I even asked him and he told me and I forgot, um, uh, we just trying to get, you know, as many different things and, and, and spend as much time with him, uh, as we could. Um, and he was really helpful in the improvisational, uh, uh, since we had some stuff where uh, we had a makeup artist or uh, not makeup artist, uh, uh, prop master, uh, uh, Megan uh, Irwin brought her dog in and uh, we were I was like, it'd be fun to use in the scene. And then we had a conversation like we don't know if we we're allowed to with ASPCA rules. And then Tony was like, I want to I want to do one with the dog. <laughs> like He was like, can I do one with the dog, please? And we didn't end up using it, which was because fr- the framing ended up kind of awkward because the dog wouldn't stand up really. But it was the 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 willingness to to go there with people he does you know i mean he'd just met me the night before and we'd had a drink and kind of you know talked a little bit about the role and everything and the project but you know just to i mean that's why he's a professional you know so uh can't say enough nice things about it i, ha- I had a great experience and uh, hopefully you know get to work with him again one day and hopefully get to see him on stage because i know uh that's i think i mean obviously he, he loves acting period but i know he he was the one who was like, you need to read August Wilson's plays, like, you know, uh, talking to me about that. And even during um, even during uh, quarantine, you know, when things started to shut down and he he had texted me to uh, or I had texted him to update him on the state of the movie, basically, and kind of let him know what we were doing. And he was just like, uh, that sounds great. Stay creative, you know, keep, you know, you know, he's just very supportive. And I was just really, you know, he doesn't it, someone of his stature doesn't have to be that nice. And he is. And that's the best thing I could say about him. He's he's a great dude. That makes me so happy when I hear that people, especially icons, are nice and kind. That just fills my heart with warm, happy feelings, knowing that Tony Todd is out there being such a good dude. 
I would, I told you I I would allow it, Tony. If you're listening, anytime, <laughs> come on out to the wine country. <laughs> Go out for a bit, and you can bring your hook. I think the fact that uh, that was like a very big day for us, but it didn't feel any different than any other day. Like he folded himself into uh, the the crew, as you said, so well, like. And he didn't seem to have any pretension or any problem. And how many sweaters did he put on? How many how many wardrobe changes did we make him do? Uh, I would go count them, but he took a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, I, uh, he yeah he. I mean, he's obviously welcome to, of course. Uh, but yeah, I, I remember when. Um, so for the uh, we had a uh, a screening in Toronto for the Toronto uh, Indie Horror Film Festival. And I was uh, uh, able to go up for that, and I brought uh, James Storm, who's also in the movie, and Stephen Green, who plays uh, the camera operator Kevin in the movie, um, who's on the reality show crew. And uh, they came up with me, and uh, I brought three of Tony's sweaters. I was like, "If it, you know, if you guys want to do it," and they were both like, "No." <laughs> oh come on! Like, why did you do that? No, don't. <laughs> um, I think I think I tried one on, and it doesn't like uh, it. It's just he's taller than me, so it does it mm-hmm. doesn't quite fit right. Like. It's it, it's kind of fits, but the collar was wider than so. But anyway, I bet Tony Todd smells good. You know, I don't recall that specifically, but I'm gonna say yeah. Josh, you might you you, you were. <laughs> I was pretty. He just I was seems like the kind of guy, right? He would walk by and he'd just be like, oh, "Tony was in the room, huh?" Just like <laughs> just like a sandalwood lingering here. <laughs> He's just got a nice aura about him. Uh, Andrew, Andrew, we're talking talking about about the sweaters sweaters. I I do do have have to ask you you, Where is the cat cat vest? Uh, In the movie room On the back of a chair I got it Uh, Okay, good Okay (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like it just being mysterious because uh, I have no idea, but if you want me to leave it in, I'll leave it. In. I just want to. I just want to know that it's safe. Yeah, leave the cat vest part. Take out the part at the beginning where I said I was horny, and I think we're good. <laughs> Actually, if you could put those next to each other to make it seem as if the cat vest makes him horny. What did they say on Blake? Keep it. Keep it and double it. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you have anything to plug, bud? No. Uh, I seriously don't. I've got, uh, I guess I've got a couple of reviews coming up on the Sounds Like Nashville site. I'm doing some more movie reviews. Uh, so yeah, I guess I do. I've got one for Last Night in Soho and 13 Minutes, I believe, uh, an indie disaster film, uh, that I'm supposed to review this week. Uh, Last Night in Soho, worth a theatrical trip? I would say so. I was concerned based on a few of the uh early reviews that i had read but i very thoroughly enjoyed it i would give a little bit of a content warning for people who are squeamish about sexual assault right on that's good to know um i have a sorcerer andrew you mentioned sorcerer earlier our guest a few weeks ago umar is a huge sorcerer head i watched it this past week uh and talk to Josh and Umar as I was watching it and it was just like this is like if William Friedkin directed a Top Gear special or something. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. I, I knew nothing about it going in and now I want to watch more Roy Scheider movies. So, 
check out Sorcerer. It's it's badass uh road movie. Not even really. Just like it's just like the coolest vehicle movie. <laughs> and um, I don't know how people didn't die. I Yes, I need to learn more about the production of that movie because some of those shots don't make sense. Yep. Like uh, just from any kind of perspective, they don't make sense to me of how it was done, how it could have been done safely. N- none of it. It, it. It's ridiculous. It's a preposterous movie. Highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, they. that's one I always think, uh, you know, maybe it's not as good as I remember. Maybe it's just famous because it was like not available for so long. No, it's fucking rules. It's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my favorite freaking movie. Uh, Andrew, you you have it in your background, but you didn't talk about Out of the Blue at all. You should actually say that. I helped uh, contribute to the restoration campaign for Dennis Hopper's, uh, I guess, I think, third directorial effort, Out of the Blue. It's been fully restored in 4K. It is coming out on Blu-ray from uh, in the UK uh, from the BFI, and it's coming to... I don't know if it's 4K Blu-ray or regular Blu-ray in the U.S. from Severin. Um, I don't know what, I don't know when uh, yet, um, but they're doing a, they have a, uh, they've had their North American theatrical premiere scheduled, I think, for New York and L.A., and then they'll be doing a small theatrical run uh, through, like, repertory cinemas and stuff. I kind of hope, I hope the Belcourt gets it. Um, I've been able to see it on, like, Vimeo, but I'd love, you know, I'd rather see it on the big screen or, like, you know, my TV. Uh, on a 4K disc. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's a really crazy movie. I love it. Um, I, it's, I, t- I, I showed it to my brother, and he said it was very grim. So be, I would say content <laughs> warning for if you're, <laughs> I mean, child endangerment and possibly sexual assault, or uh, there's some things in that that are very, very uh, unnerving, uh, you know, but it's incredibly well made. It's kind of crazy to think that Dennis Hopper made this uh, before he got completely clean, I think. I don't think he got clean until later in the 80s. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, and under, under, underseen, uh, not, not very available movie that I'm glad is getting a new life. Um, and the producers who've been helping out with it, uh, John Allen Simon and uh, Elizabeth Carr, have been awesome. They're like super cool people. I've talked to them a bunch, and they're very supportive of uh, you know everything with that I've been that we've been doing with the reenactment so um yeah uh keep an eye out for it thank you for reminding me yeah <laughs> all right Sean what's our famous uh famous outro um thank you for listening everybody take care oh well no no, no. Oop. close thanks Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Nashville CA. Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your neighbors. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 (laughs) Cool.